Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Iftdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about the 1961 film El Cid with fellow medievalist Kyle Lincoln. Hi, would you like to... Tell us a little about yourself. The medievalist part you already covered. I'm a Castilian historian. I specialize in, in religious and legal history. So the really super boring stuff. Um, <laughs> in the high 12th century Castile and early 13th century Castile. Uh, right now I'm at the University of Wisconsin's campus in La Crosse teaching in the history department. But previously I was at Kalamazoo College where I taught for three years in history and classics after doing all the PhD stuff. So, you know, there's the first page of my CV, I guess. <laughs> And as a Castilianist, you are an especially good person to talk about this movie, which is, of course, centered in Castile. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be a little bit busier censoring out all the profanity-laced tirades that I'm probably going to get worked up into. But other than that, you know, it'll oh, be entertaining fine. at least. There are profanity, <laughs> profanities are allowed on the podcast, so I have the explicit <laughs> tag already set up. El Cid came out in 1961 and stars Charlton Heston as El Cid and Sofia Loren as Jimena, and also a number of white European men in brownface as Muslims, mm-hmm. which is a choice that and was not, made. Yeah, and not very good brownface. I know no. we're going to talk more about the technical of this movie, but like, it was not convincing. It was bad. It was uneven. The makeup, oh. What are you going to do? Yeah, I kind of missed it when I was watching it because I was watching the YouTube version of the movie. The entire movie is free on YouTube, but the coloration is not amazing. No, it is not. So yeah, I kind of missed it. And then I was actually looking these people up and yeah, that's a whole lot of white dudes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The uh, Spanish scholar Ramon Menendez Pidal served as historical advisor, which I wonder... Have they listened to him? Right. I mean, so Linehan, I think, in History and the Historians, talks about a little bit about, in like one of the footnotes, which of course, like, it's just typical to his style, right? Like, there's one footnote that somebody could write a whole article about. But he talks about Menendez Pidal being on that film. And then I had lunch with him a couple of years ago at a conference in, in Catalonia, in Lleida. And he said that, like, his impression was always that, like, Pidal was there for a paycheck and free wine. And, you know, as a historian, I can support that that career move. Yeah, I, I get it. If somebody gave me a paycheck and free wine, I would definitely consult on something and <laughs> keep my mouth shut about how bad it was. Yeah, or, well, maybe no. not keep my mouth shut, but at the very least, accept the paycheck over it anyway. Right. This was also a very pricey movie. Sophia Loren, in particular, made $200,000 for 10 weeks of work. I did not look up what that is in today's money, but a lot. So I actually did, because I was curious. Yeah. For the whole budget of the film, right, which is just a shade under $6 million, budgeted out, this would be almost a $70 million epic. And it's worth noting that that's, like, with very minimal special effects... Yeah. And with, as as I'm sure we're going to talk about later, with some pretty enormous governmental support in the production and the extras and the space use for this film, it's incredible that it was only adjusted for uh, modern currency, only a $60 million film, but at the same time, holy cow, what did they spend that money on? Yeah. Whew. Part of it also went to apparently paying Sophia Loren's hairdresser, who made $200 a week. Whew. In terms of other things that they were paying for, that included 7,000 extras, 10,000 costumes, 35 ships, 
50 medieval war engines. And then they also, there are four castles that they filmed at. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that, that strikes me, and it's something that you can tell just sort of looking at the back of the box on the film, so to speak, is that, you know, this is a pretty enormous production, right? Even by sword and sandal standards, right? This whole like subgenre of action film that starts out in the 50s and becomes super popular into the late 60s you know, of which we can point out things like Ben-Hur being right. a great example, right? Which also, conveniently enough, is a Heston film. It's it's surprising that they got to that scale and they were able to pull that off, you know, especially if they're paying. And I just looked it up because I was curious when you said $200 a week. That's about, according to, to the internet, you know, reliable source that it is, it's about a $1,700 a week paycheck for Sophia Loren's hairdresser. And, you know, I don't think it's going to shock anybody to know that modern university professors don't get paid that much. Oh, no, I do not make that uh, much. No way. Sophia Loren's hairdresser is, is good work, I suppose, if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, we can move into our next section, Enumeratio, sure. or the recap section, where we kind of mm -hmm. go through the details of the film. So mm -hmm. first, just kind of very brief recap uh, or even kind of statement of premise to orient us. I tried doing a more detailed one and then stopped because I decided it would take too long because this is a three-hour movie. Yes, it is. So the very brief version is the film follows the life of Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, here presented as a heroic figure who values honor above all else and therefore wins <laughs> the love of many but the hatred of some. Over the course of three plus hours. We follow the twists and turns in his relationship with his wife Jimena and his king Alfonso VI of Castile as he attempts to save, quote, Spain from the invasion of Muslim religious fanatics from North Africa as they are presented here. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's a generous summary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can be less generous as we get into the well, specific details. Right. No, you're, you're much more merciful than I am. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So we begin with an overture with some very militaristic pseudo-Spanish music. Mm-hmm. Six minutes of, of, of such an overture, by the way. It's like that. so long. <laughs> I definitely will say, I had a lot of moments when watching this movie where I just went, this I could have cut down and I could have made this a two-hour film. Yep, yep. <laughs> no, that, and the worst part about the six-hour musical overture is... You know, and it's it's sort of typical of Sword and Sandal movies to often, like, use that overture to do some big title cards to say, like, here's the background, right? Here's where we are. This is what's going on in Rome. This is what's going on in Greece. Here's here's Alexander or whatever it might be. But the overture has almost none of that. No, it has these just weird sketches of El Cid in the background. <laughs> right. And then, like... The, the intermission, of course, which we'll get to later, is almost the same. It's almost like it's yeah. another movement of this score, and it's just as long. And then the end credits are end credits. It's not even one of those, those films where yeah. they put the, the credits up, up front as, as title cards. It's, <laughs> it's interesting, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a choice. Yeah, it is a choice. That's a good way to put it. Yes. It describes, I think, again, quote, Spain, as a war-torn, unhappy land, half Christian and half Moor. Oof, that word. Yep. A word that would have been used in the time, but uh, which is not entirely without its racist overtones. Yeah, I mean, I suppose to an extent, right, in the 60s, you know, and, and here we're talking about like 1961, right, like they're, they're still under Franco's dictatorship. Yeah. So some of those, some of those racist overtones are less problematic. But also like, even looking at scholarship in the Anglophone world in the 60s, that had yet to be to be talked about yeah. as a deeply problematic term, which, you know, depending on, on your scholarly perspective, is either a little bit racist and probably 
should be minimized or is very, very racist and should be eliminated, yeah. except in, in direct, you know, primary source attribution, but right. that there's no such scruples in <laughs> 1960s Hollywood. Right. I get the choice to some extent to use it in dialogue in the film, mm-hmm. but using it in the opening right. credits is more questionable. Right, right. I mean, especially for all that he gets a bad rap, Heston's role in the Hollywood response to the civil rights movement, you know, is something that that he probably doesn't get enough credit for being a major action movie star and saying, hey, this King guy has got some some decent ideas. Mm -hmm. We should maybe talk about this, right? And, you know, I mean, this is a guy that that by the time that was happening had been in the Ten Commandments, had done all this incredible big budget work. And so I I almost wonder what, what, if we kind of brought some books back and said, hey, uh, Mr. Heston, are you aware what his response would be yeah. uh, to starting to starting the movie like this? Yeah. yeah. El Cid is described as a simple man who became Spain's greatest hero, Oof. overcoming religious divisions to fight a common enemy, the African Emir Ben Yusuf, in the yeah. words of these opening credits. Oof. Yeah. So then we immediately get into here comes the evil Muslim who complains about how people think of the rulers of Muslim Al-Andalus, a term that I don't think is ever actually used nope. as poets and singers and not as warriors, including the you have become women, burn your books, make warriors of your poets, let your doctors invent new poisons for our arrows and so on. So essentially <laughs> no culture, just war. <laughs> And, you know, like, it's funny because his, Ben Yusuf's little, you know, sort of rallying cry speech is, I mean, first of all, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, in greater detail, that the chronology is compressed a lot, right? So Ben Yusuf's crossing is, is you know, sort of painted as being early 1080 in this film, sort of. But, I mean, he, that criticism that, that Al-Andalus is filled with, with warriors and poet or with, with poets and singers, not warriors, is maybe truer than it would be for Almoravid, North Africa. Right. But there are certainly military powerhouses in oh, yeah. Al-Andalus, you know, all over. The, I mean, for crying out loud, half a century after the death of Rodrigo Diaz, right, you get a guy whose nickname is literally the Wolf King um, <laughs> in, in Spanish Chronicles yeah. because he's such a badass. Yeah. And, you know, he's also a poet, so what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention there's things like there's this kind of implication that, you know, they're also not on board with doctors, I guess, in uh, among <laughs> the, uh, the Amorati. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the problem, too, is that I think that there's also this kind of claim being made that the Almoravids are then only warriors and have zero respect for any kind of other intellectual, any kind of intellectual endeavor. Right. No, it's, it's this kind of, of classic savior savage dichotomy going on yeah right that they're already sort of foreshadowing a little bit and you know like all of that is hilarious in the fact that i mean look yeah the almoravids do conquer a lot right but they're tax reformers that's yeah. their thing like mm-hmm. we're gonna eliminate bad unlawful taxes and go back to a simpler economic system and like streamline our tax policy like mm-hmm. there are a lot of politicians in the modern world that are, that yeah. are clamoring for that yeah. And, you know, the Almoravids are, are painted here as being, you know, explicitly African, as though that's a distinction they would have recognized, right. as being somehow disconnected from Al-Andalus, as though they haven't mm-hmm. been, you know, participating, receiving, collaborating in all these processes the whole time. It's it's an interesting note to start on, yeah. leaving aside the fact that in that scene, right, like, he's already in this, like, almost harem caricature of a film yeah. space. And it's, oof, yeah. 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 
We then move into Elsid's first heroic appearance in a battle against the Muslims, which, as it ends, he literally carries a cross on his back. And Jesus. Don't forget Jesus yep. on the cross. <laughs> yes, a cross with Jesus. He is not only bearing the cross, he is bearing Jesus on the cross. I, I, I think it's hard to come up with any kind of more overt metaphor to line up what Elsid is going to be, right? He's going to literally carry yeah. the cross and in the process Christianity, you know, throughout the course of this film. And it's, oof. And essentially, best, you know, spoiler alert, sacrifice himself for the, you know, sins of, <laughs> quote, Spain. Right. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I looked, um, the Castilian in me got really interested as as to whether or not this is actually like a village or, or battle that I could line up. And for the life of mm-hmm. me, I think they just made the scene up for the movie so they could do that cross scene because there, right. there isn't a good, like, there's not a good point where it's like, oh, well, you know, in 1079, this thing happened. It's, it's not even yeah. close to the case. And of course, the other purpose of the scene is that it then gives him this opportunity to take all these Muslim prisoners right. that they can then heroically refuse to execute. Yeah. So I was trying to, to track those, those actors to see if I lined it up right. Are they supposed to be generals from the Emirate of Zaragoza? Is that what you picked up on that? I think so, but I'm not a hundred. It was really not made clear. Well, I mean, I mean that yeah, would make yeah. sense. That would make sense, sort of. I mean, it wouldn't make sense. Right in, but... in the film's kayfabe, it would totally make sense, even though. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oof. And especially because it's also, I don't think it's even really clear where the battle takes place. No, no, and that's that's why so... I was trying to like dig through. You know, I, I opened up a, a couple of old books and a couple of recent ones to try and get any of the sort of military history. And, you know, if, if you're exhausting Bernard Riley, Simon Barton, and Francisco Garcia Fitz on military stuff, then it probably didn't happen. Yeah. Like, if, if, they, yeah. if, if, those, if those three didn't find it, um, it probably did not happen when it comes to, to military history of, of Castile in the period. So, I mean, that's almost that almost makes this scene even more precious, right? It's not as though they're airbrushing yeah. something. They just decided what we really need is a conquest capture rescue scene to, like, bring together all the film's thematic elements in the first five minutes of action. And so this then begins the kind of first of the big conflicts, is that he insists that he's not going to execute these Muslim prisoners. The king's man, Ordonez, orders him to do so in the name of the king. He continues to say no. This then ends up leading to this whole thing where... Oh, it's, and I find this scene a pain in the ass, where, you know, his wife is very, or his uh, fiance Jimena, is very upset about this whole situation. We have a scene in which uh, the Castilian princess Uraka comes to tell her about this in the most circuitous and snarky way possible. Yeah, under glorious <laughs> groin vaulting, uh, an open staircase with a bunch of art. The set for this looks like somebody's medieval cosplay campground like it's just so over the top that you can't you can't this this could be nothing else than the royal palace where they are obviously and i will say also the art in particular drives me nuts (gasps) because there's all of these bits that are clearly supposed to be painted onto the walls of churches that are then cut out and put in frames along the staircase of yeah, a palace. You, you can sort of feel Franco's army saying, like, do you want us to move this wall, boss? Like, to put in these sets. Yeah. It's just, just too much. Yeah. As his father is trying to defend him, he ends up coming up against Jimena's father, who insults and I think, strikes him. Mm-hmm. 
And then in response, uh, Rodrigo then has to defend his father's honor and his family name and then ends up killing Jimena's father, which she, of course, uh, is then, you know, he asks her to avenge her, avenge him as a son would. And so, of course, there goes that relationship. Right. I, I really thought Jimena's dad does a really great job of fighting in this duel, considering he's been dead for 35 years by the time the movie says it starts. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, if I look that good when I've been 35 dead, you know, that would be that would be pretty great. The whole tension, and, you know, leaving aside the fact that Jimena's father is the Count of Oviedo, right? He's not a small deal. Yeah. Now, granted, again, he's been right. dead since before the king they pretend is king uh, in this movie has even come to the throne, but Rodrigo is not, right? right? Like, he's he's very much a... Yeah. I mean, his dad's successful, but, but Rodrigo's the first one to get sort of to that commodal rank, and yet... Yeah. He's dueling for why exactly? No reason! <sighs> yeah. Especially because it seems like they just keep sort of losing track of to what extent he's actually subject to any kind of treason yeah. charges. which he's not. It's not treason to not hand over hostages that you take in battle. Like, that's... Right. Not in any fuero does it say that, like, if, a, if somebody takes hostages, they have to hand over the whole hostage. Right? Like, yeah. You... No, it's technically subject to his decision as the person who took the hostages. Right. And, and, you know, of course, hostages are more valuable alive, so Sid is not only in the film doing this thing that's somehow complicated, but he's doing the thing that would have been more sensible to a medieval audience anyway. And at best, the only way he could get run up for any kind of charges is, like, if he doesn't break off the king a share of the, the loot he gets for tr- selling the hostages back. Right. Like, ugh. Right. And it also doesn't even make sense that the king is insisting upon executing all of these people, many of whom are presented as being quite right. important. I mean, especially because, like, Fernando's whole crowning achievement is getting as many of the Parias payments, um, the, those those tribute payments from all Andalus that he possibly can, right? Like, that's why he's, right. he's able to give 100 pounds of gold every year to a French abbey he's never been to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, oof, yeah. This this whole crime thing feels a lot more like a bad episode of Law and Order than than a good cinematic achievement. Yeah. Speaking of miraculous resurrections, uh, the current king, supposedly uh, Fernando, yeah. then gets involved in this in this conflict with the king of Aragon over the city of Calahorra, yeah. and the way that this is then to be solved in the film is that there will be a single combat. (laughs) Rodrigo simultaneously is apparently fighting for the king of Castile to get the city of Calahorra and also his own innocence of these treason charges that everyone seems to have half forgotten about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a mess and would not happen in any situation. No, no. I mean, the idea of a lord being judged, okay, by a trial, by ordeal of combat, right? Okay, is maybe early here, but and you know we could we could add in Rachel Welch and, and ask her what she's found on some of this stuff. But but my understanding of it has always been that a trial by ordeal is almost exclusively re- regarded for like high treason. Not I insulted yeah. maybe the king a little bit, sort of right. Like this is just such a circuitous right. route to get to, especially because like almost none of this. You know, the king of Castile being dead for eight years and the king of Aragon being dead for six. Um, at this point, right, you know, like, all right, they're going to compress the the chronology a little bit, but exactly why they're fighting over a city that's supposed to be in the Basque country and under Navarrese influence, you know, just makes this whole thing even weirder that they've they've erased the whole kingdom and also created some already. It's just a mess. 
And also, in addition, the trial by combat thing. Trial by combat has, when it exists, it has rules. Yeah. yeah. You don't fight against another king's champion right. to defend yourself against the charge of treason to your no. own king. No, you do not. <laughs> I mean, this weird double function of the single combat yeah. is ridiculous. Yeah. It sort of feels like a student trying to turn in one paper for two classes, right? Even if you don't get caught, you're going to get... <laughs> and it doesn't really work for us. Yeah, no, I mean, even if you don't get caught, you're going to get a C- minus because you screwed the, the question up enough. Right. Leaving aside all of the the setting looks like a dinner party that's hosted at like an outdoor medieval times rather than anything remotely resembling Aragon or Castile in the period. It actually looks so much like medieval times, which now is specifically Spain right. themed. Right. Yikes. Yikes. And the fact also that it is very that it's presented as being jousting as the start <laughs> of it is also off. Yeah. So this this whole scene makes me feel like at some point one of the Hollywood guys said, well, it's a medieval movie. We have to have a joust. And probably, you know, the right. Menendez Pidal or, or whomever it was that was sort of trying to set it up were like, well, if you're going to do a joust, you might as well just do whatever you want, right? Because that's ridiculous. Um, but And, you know, I, I sometimes try to save some of these things for the end, but I'm also just going to go ahead and say in terms of the inventing oh. of kingdoms that uh, as specifically somebody who works on Catalonia... Yeah. It was driving me insane that the King of Aragon and his champion have as their uh, heraldic crest the arms of the Counts of Barcelona, despite the fact that that dynastic union will not happen for another 70 years. If if we're generous and we just assume that it's 1080, right? Like, who knows what year we're actually in, right? (laughs) Right, yeah. What's more, and this is since since you bring it up, right, the Castilian crest at this point is showing the Alcazar of Segovia, and that triple tower feature doesn't show up even in coins, right, which is the sort of earliest version we have in Castile, because our, all our stuff is, is missing, which makes me sad. It's supposed to be like one tower, right? It's not three yet, and, and the yeah. lion is supposed to yeah. be on the other side, and then there's this... This third element, which I think is supposed to be a Burgundian crest, sort of quartered. So, like, the whole thing is just this weird, like, it looks like a student went on Wikipedia and said, these are things that look like Spanish shields, I'm going to use them without context, right? Right. Yeah, the joust scene that that also ends in murder, and and then and then yeah. murdering, and then oh, Shimena, you gave this token to the to the Aragonese champion, which like supporting Aragon in this trial, that's actual, yep. tre- that's treason, treason, and yeah. you know, mind you, her brothers aren't it because it's not just about like this dude and her father; it is about the kind of just distribution of wealth the city that there shouldn't have been this fight over but right. that as it may she is essentially expressing support for the king of aragon over right. her own king. which then rodrigo takes the the scarf because of course a few minutes ago she's she's only gonna wear black because everything is black now and so he steals the thing off a lance that or, or off the rather no, off his sword like after he's killed a guy in a tournament fight, you you yep. you don't kill someone. It's a big no no. It's a big problem, right? Like one mm-hmm. time a, a French king yep. gets a, a lance in the eye and he dies, and the guy that that kills him is in prison for the rest of his life. Right. It doesn't make sense that this would not, in fact, spark more yeah. of a war, yeah. as opposed to just great, we yeah. solved that problem. But however, it does solve that problem. He also because he you know he grabs her scarf and all of that and hands it back to the king, and then he you know kind of yells, hey, I killed that lady's father, so that means I have to marry her now. To which the king says, yeah, "Yeah, sure, whatever. Which, I mean, you know, 
That's 11th century consent law for you. Yikes. Yep. Not not great. He then is uh, kind of goes up. I will say the one thing I do appreciate is that they do keep having a kind of bishop's blessing yeah, thing. I can't figure out who that bishop is. Yeah. I do appreciate the kind of mild taking religion You can definitely seriously. tell that like, you know, two of Menendez Pidal's students become bishops with how often there are clergy in the background, right? Like, even if they're not, mm-hmm. they're not doing a lot, and even if they're never actually identified, we'll talk about, like, the bishops and lack thereof in, later, I'm sure, but the fact that there's just this random guy who's dressed more along the lines of, like, contemporary papal regalia than as an archbishop, and the fact that there isn't an archbishop in Castile at this point just makes this whole thing nuts. <laughs> they don't have an archbishop. Right. They're a little they're a little yeah. salty about it. And yet in the film there's this guy in a full white miter with a crozier doing like the hand wrapping uh, for the wedding. It was just it was a lot. It was very 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 extra yeah. on the part of the church actors. Time traveling archbishops. <laughs> he is then on the road again for something. There is a sneak attack from some Muslims? Yeah. It's not really clear who they're supposed to be exactly. No, but they have a curvy sword, so they must be Muslims. Right. And also they, you know, have like pen scarves, basically. Right, yeah. Those two things definitely have to be Muslim soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> who are financed by another count at the court that Shimana has conspired with. And did I, did I understand it right? Like they were conspiring under, at her father's crypt? Yes, yeah, so they're hanging out at her father's crypt, and this guy, who's the same guy from before, I think, Ordonez, who told him he had to hand over the prisoners, and he said no. And then also, I guess the whole time, he's wanted to marry Jimena, because there's all of this kind of weird stuff set up where he really wants to marry Jimena, and every now and then it's kind of implied that Uraka is actually into um, into El Cid, <laughs> and there's yeah. like this weird kind of half-heartedly done romance plots. But so because of that, he basically agrees that he's going to hire some Muslims to try and kill off Rodrigo in exchange for her then marrying him. Yeah, and like all of that is just so screwed up. Like if this is the Ordonez he's supposed to be, right, both from the song and from history, he's the Count of Nahara. He's got a legitimate beef with El Cid for <laughs> encroaching on his territory. But like, they don't deal with any of that. They just want this weird, I don't even know what it is, because like Araka's kind of into her brother, and she's kind of also into El Cid, and Jimena's both in this weird, I'm not sure about El Cid, but he's he's Charlton Heston, so I have to have this magnetism towards him, and Count Ordonez. It's like a love pentagon that never gets it's really resolved. so awkward. Yeah, no, it's a mess. Sancho, the, uh, the king's son, then encourages Rodrigo to uh, kill Ordonez, and, uh, you know, he then refuses because of honor or something. One of those things that uh, is being insisted on one again, again and again is his honor above all else right. rationale. He comes back and an extremely grumpy wedding takes place. Yeah, there's nobody at this wedding feast. No! There were like four people. Yeah, the wedding feast is him and Jimena sitting alone at the table with these like two dudes who are friends of of his trying to get her really excited about how good the wine is in Vivar. Right, I think think the implication was also that in a very like 60s way, it's almost like they're trying to tell her to smile because it's her wedding day. And do it yep. with with saying, like, this is really good red wine. And, like, I, having been to Biwa del Cid, there are, like, two wine stores there now. Like, I don't know where they got this, the wine is really good thing, but, like... I think it's just, like, because it's in Spain. Right. Well, <laughs> so I mean, right, Franco wants to sell the wine, for sure. Quote, Spain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Rodrigo, you know, starts getting drunk. Yeah. While she's getting dressed, he kind of goes to her. She informs him that as her kind of big act of revenge, she's never, ever going to love him, even though technically he can have her if he, if he wants to. Which is a great message for kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then it's also this just like lowest possible bar of, uh, you know, he's the good guy because he didn't rape his wife. Right. I don't want to get into too much of of the gory details here. But can we talk about her bridal lingerie and the whole changing scene? Because I don't know who in the world says, you know what I really need? I need 16 feet of taffeta with gigantic fringe tassels at the end of like (laughs) sleeves that go on forever. And I need four people to dress me in it so that there is so much cloth. It almost felt to me like Sophia Loren was like, I don't want to show too much skin in this movie because reasons. And so they were like, okay, here's an entire castle's worth of curtains. We're going to turn this into your (laughs) bridal lingerie. I'm like, I get that they're trying to be tasteful about it, but it was so over the top that it was just... I, I remember yeah. looking at it and going, I'm pretty sure I've seen those fringe, like, tassel things on a couch cushion at a parador somewhere above <laughs> the Duero, and, like, now they're on Sophia Laurent. And, like, the whole wedding dress, wedding feast thing isn't leading to this, like, big moment where she needs to look powerful and solid. And so it's it's almost like they put her in the most ridiculous outfit just to make the scene even more uncomfortable. Right. She has this kind of awkward, kind of giant outfit that she puts on, and then she switches it for this other awkward, gigantic outfit that mm-hmm. doesn't actually, in a lot of ways, honestly, look that different. And it's like... Right. She takes off for a tiny bit to a convent, uh, which, which, which the nun just <laughs> basically tells her, oh, you're not the type. Get out of here. Which is fair, right? Because it's Sophia Loren, right? right. I, I would pay good money to have seen Sophia Loren in the 60s hang out in a convent for a day like as a reality show oh yeah I did actually once come across there was like a Latin immersion program that I could have done that would have been actually living in a convent in Rome yeah and then decided I could not handle as a Jewish woman living with nuns for a summer no I mean the food would have been great so there would have been that I guess but there's there's a cool program at the Belmont Abbey School in the Carolinas which sometimes I think about you know, when it gets really cold here in the winter, I think, yeah, I could go. Yeah. But then, of course, it's Carolina in the summer, and yeah. that's that's a whole other... Which which brings me to this. It's perpetually summer in this movie. Clearly. There, there are no seasons at all, and yet everybody in the nobility is wearing black, which feels to me like somebody was wandering around villages during the time of Franco, saw all the peasants wearing, like, the black-on-black smock mm-hmm. in a small village, and was like, well, okay, Shimena's got to wear black this whole movie until... Like, she and Rodrigo fix things up, and then she can wear not black. Right, because she's mourning for her father until she decides she is bored of that. Right. Essentially. (laughs) Is bored of that enough to have twins somehow, but... And there's also so much clothing that everyone is wearing. Like, it's not just, like, her and her, like, tassel situation. It's that everybody looks at all times like they're wearing 12 layers. Right, which nobody in the world in the meseta is going to do. Yeah. And they're not even breathable fabrics. Like, it's yeah. not like they're all wandering around wearing cotton, right? They're they're in 13 pounds of wool. Most of the men are also wearing, like, leather chaps, because why wouldn't you? The whole thing just seems like somebody said, okay, we ordered costumes for 40 starring actors how many do we have and someone said no 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 not 40 four right <laughs> and they're like well we gotta use it we're not gonna get a return yeah no i mean it kind of reminds me of you know my mother always tells the story of she went to paris and it was in the summer but it was actually really cold and so she just put all of her clothes on top of like just wore all of her clothes every time she went out yes. that's what the costuming looks like about half the time in this movie <gasps> it, it really it really is a lot and like it's made that really obvious transition from like the convent to this church and everybody's 
wardrobe is very much like over the top in every scene, right? So yeah. at the convent, Loren is overdressed as as the Shimena character, and then they get to another church, and the the local priest is wearing a ton of clothing, even though he's supposed to be just like a random local parochial, and everything is over the top. Right, and so the priest practically looks like a bishop, so I guess it makes sense that the bishop practically looks like an archbishop. Right, but yeah, everybody just has to be promoted a level to make the movie look good. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Fernando then dies. Bit late, but finally, you know, about time. He uh, is divvying the kingdom up, which nobody is happy about. Uraka is given Kalahora, which must be so nice for her. Yeah. It's the wrong side of the peninsula, but at least she does get a city. Right, with then Sancho getting Castile and Alfonso is supposed to get Leon. They move pretty quickly to Alfonso trying to kill Sancho. He decides to kind of take a page from El Cid's book and not then have him executed. Right. I guess upon uh, Uraka's uh, request. Uh, this is also where we first start to get the mention during this duel between the brothers of the incest rumors about Uraka and Alfonso. Yep. Which just sort of makes the whole thing even stickier. This whole, we're going to divvy things up and we're going to get the brother arrested. Yeah. And it's not even the right brother. And I actually also just then realized the line actually then says, accompany his highness to his new kingdom, the dungeon of the of Zamora. That's actually right. the city that Uraka should have. Yes. And he's not even the brother that's... There is a brother who's imprisoned. He is imprisoned in Galicia, not Zamora. Right. Alfonso at this time, and I know, I know we're going to get to the true and false part, but this, this whole part of the dividing the kingdom thing was just... It was too much for me. I had to stop and, like, get more popcorn because I was just <laughs> enraged. But this whole idea that, like, not only are we going to delete Garcia of, Gar- of Galicia, okay, he's a distracting character, but, like, Alfonso VI goes into exile in, to- in Muslim Toledo at the time, and we're not even, like, going to talk about that. He's just going straight to a dungeon that yep. his brother's in. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was just absolutely nuts. Yeah. We then have Ibn Yusuf, who goes to Valencia, to intimidate their emir, and to make sure he has a spot to land his, quote, armada, which is such an interesting word choice, considering that the only time I have ever seen the word armada used is specifically to refer to the 16th century Spanish Christian fleet of Philip II. Right. Like, if the Almoravids were known for having a big fleet, then okay. But they're not, right? They're known for building castles, for, for building murabi, all along the, the Moroccan countryside. So they're not even like, it's not even like they were actually like really intense about boats. Like that's right. exactly the opposite of what they were good at. Right. And especially it's also, why would it, yeah. And it's also just very odd that there's this kind of insistence on specifically going all the way to Valencia. Why would you go all the way to Valencia as opposed to landing? Oh, bas- said yes. <laughs> yeah. Like basically just like going five seconds across the water. Right. I mean, even if you did want to go to a big city, the Guadalquivir is navigable all the way up to Sevilla at this point. Yeah. Like, you can get to the heartland of Al-Andalus. Yeah. And, and to a place that is eventually going to be the Almoravid, like, center of gravity in the peninsula. But, like, that wouldn't be a nice, clean narrative, right? We can't right. make Valencia unimportant if Valencia is going to be the place for the climactic scene of the movie. Right. Valencia is also one of the more Orientalist things I have ever seen. Oh my, oh my goodness. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about this, this whole Ibn Yusuf and the Emir scene, because it's, it's yeah. a lot. Yeah. So it's a lot of that kind of same uh, Ibn Yusuf kind of bullying the Emir of Valencia, but then it's also then this like very obvious on the two separate unfortunate Muslim stereotypes, one being the kind of creepy religious fundamentalist in the form of Ibn Yusuf, 
And then the other being the kind of decadent harem stereotype as seen in the Emir of Valencia. Yeah, who, by the way, has like his head shaved and is completely, I mean, I'm not sure if they were trying to imply that he's a eunuch, but he certainly looked more like a eunuch character than any that I can remember in quite a long time in movies. Which inherently makes no sense because a eunuch would not be the Emir. No, no. I mean, maybe a Vazir, maybe, but yeah. but even then, like that would be that would be particularly dramatic. And of course, you know, Ibn Yusuf is this whole time dressed in black on black to make him the yep. most emphatic and obnoxious character he can be. Yes, with his entire face covered. I mean, he's basically wearing like a man burka. <laughs> yes, which I think we should call a murka. Um... <laughs> yeah, so there's, yeah, the emir who's presented in this kind of visual that implies a eunuch, even though it makes no sense for him to be a eunuch. And so it seems like this basically just like, let's throw some Orientalist stereotypes at this character and see if any of them stick. And in addition, the decor of the palace is this like awkward pastiche of five centuries of Islamic art. Oh my gosh, yeah. It reminds me of like the worst kind of Pinterest quotes about like, isn't this Spanish palace great? And there's like a picture of like, the Alhambra next to the Real Alcazar in Sevilla. Right. And it's just like, <laughs> what are you doing? And it's like next to a, a, a piece from like Uzbekistan. And you're like, you're in five centuries and three in three different places. What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And that like and the, the function of that scene, right, is is obviously clear, right? Like it's supposed to be another one of these. The Andalusi Muslims are weak and effeminate and obviously El Cid by trying to save Spain from their influence is a good guy. And then that contrasted with like Ibn Yusuf being himself like this unsavory character that they also like so that he's a double savior almost that we've got this victim right. in in andalusi muslims who don't know that the real muslims from africa are bad guys but also you know we've got to deal with the this this weird sort of i don't know what this composite of three sides of this conflict that just they didn't need to make it this complicated they simultaneously made it too complicated and insufficiently complicated that's right. They, they tried to write like two storylines together so that they could tell one story, but in the process they did neither. Yeah. Yeah, just, it's just so bad. Back to the continued dramas of the royal family, El Cid has uh, helped Alfonso escape and uh, taken him to his sister at Calahora. <laughs> and Sancho then rides to Calahora and yells at Uraka from the ground. They kind of yell for a while. And Uraka tries to talk Rodrigo into joining them, and he is trying to do this awkward thing where he's saying, no, I'm supporting all of you equally. Yeah. A thing that is literally impossible to do. Yeah, well, I mean, and especially because they're supposed to, they're not only supposed to be kings from different kingdoms, but they're actively trying to disinherit one another. Right. <laughs> there, There is not a path to him being on all sides it does not make sense no they they also it's by the way during this whole scene he keeps uh he keeps just literally uraka standing right there and he just keeps forgetting she exists like he <sighs> keeps saying it to alfonso like i swore to serve you and your brother equally and uraka is like and me and then he's like yeah sancho and alfonso <laughs> right Right, leaving aside that there are, even even if we accept that, like, Uraka is supposed to just be a stand-in, and that somewhere, yes, there's another brother, there's another sister, we're not going to deal with that. But, like, all of that is completely unnecessary. Like, this whole, yep. 
Uraka subplot feels like somebody thought, like, we're gonna set a good spin-off and then we'll have the Uraka movie because they mislooked up which Uraka this is. That they think right. it's they think it's the Queen and not the Infanta. Like, right. They're they're in the wrong generation. <laughs> ah Yeah. Which of course leads to the the scene where we might almost actually be getting to stuff that we can link to the the whole Sid corpus. Yes. But not before some weird interlude where they've transposed the scene to a different city, right? So this whole mm-hmm. this whole conversation and then they're riding around the walls and they don't say that they've changed location. They should be, right? They Kalahora is on the other side of the peninsula. They should be instead under the walls of Zamora. Right. But of course they've transferred all the good Zamora stuff to Kalahora because then they can link the two Kalahora bits. And then Sancho gets stabbed. While wearing a chainmail coat. Right. I mean, given that at some point I look at the, I've looked at the chainmail and I'm pretty sure it's like basically sequins. Yeah. I mean, you know, two generations ago, Sarah, not to get too personal about this, I, I actually had a great grandfather that was from Memphis and he worked in the sequin mines. And I, you know, like we don't talk about, we don't talk <laughs> about the effect that sequin, <laughs> sorry, I can't keep that up. No, but it does. It absolutely, and they're not even good sequins. No. Right. You can tell that this is somebody went to Halloween Express circa 1961 and said i want the night costume please and then they're like yeah. Ooh, not wild about the overshirt i'll just take the chainmail coat right yeah so despite wearing what is ostensibly chainmail, he gets stabbed with this like teeny tiny little dagger yeah so i did some i did an experiment at this point in the movie i, I paused the movie i have a chainmail dice bag for playing dungeons and dragons because spoiler alert they're medievalists who are nerds and i got a steak knife from my knife block, a long one, because I was thinking, okay, if you're gonna try and assassinate someone in chainmail like this, you're gonna need a long pointy dagger, right? Because a big flat right. one isn't gonna work. And I tried to, this is gonna sound really ridiculous, I tried to stab myself with a hand, gently, but I wanted to see if I could actually get the blade through. And of course you can't, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, you, you need like a, a tiny screwdriver to get through the, the yeah. spots, right? Like That's the point of chainmail. Right. If anything, <laughs> Sancho should be getting, like, he'll get a bruise, he might get a scrape, but, like, this is a boo-boo. This is not an assassination. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and especially also because, he, actually, based on what he's wearing, it actually would have totally worked if the guy had stabbed him in the neck. Right! But which he does not do. He's got all this exposed flesh! Yeah, like, there's so much, there's so many exposed spots that would have made more sense, but no. Which, of course, leads to the big scene that sets up this whole, the whole Sid drama, right? Is that, that yeah. Alfonso kills Sancho, and then Sid has to choose a side, and he's like a Castilian partisan. And, like, at this point, by my mark, we're 90 minutes into the movie. We are literally halfway through the movie before we get to the part of the Sid story that's legit. Yeah. And also just to even add in, then there's this whole, again, overly complicated plot line in which the guy who kills Sancho mm-hmm. is uh, sent in to do so by Uraka, but actually he's really being paid by Ibn Yusuf. Yes, somehow. Which is just deeply unnecessary. Yeah, so this, this blonde-haired, blue-eyed queen who is apparently in this weird love pentangle is also now a murderer allied with or financed by Ibn Yusuf. And like the finance by part I can get, right? Like we know the Almoravids did stuff like that. And we know that contemporary practices to finance proxy wars. But like why that was even needed. Right. And it puts her in this awkward position because it's not entirely clear if she knows or not that this guy is being paid by Ibn Yusuf. And it's it's just very messy and awkward. Yeah, it's definitely unnecessary. 
as a plot yeah. twist. And it just adds like another four minutes of stuff that you could cut and make this a much better movie. Yeah. Speaking of additional scenes that probably don't need to be there, <laughs> then there's a bit where uh, Uraka goes to see Himena, who is embroidering this thing that yeah. looks like you basically like bought the embroider your own random corner of the Bayou Tapestry kit. Yeah. Like, from a gift shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think what it's supposed to be is, like, this kind of, like, Rape of Lucretia redub, right? Where, so, so Uraka is coming as the, like, decadent, and Jimena is supposed to be, like, super down-to-earth and, and real. And then, like, we get more layers of this ridiculous love plot. Yeah, where she's clearly jealous of Jimena that uh, Rodrigo loves her, but also she's, like, had multiple scenes at this point where she looks like she's about to make out with her brother, and it's... Yeah. It's, it's so just, much. And, of course, like, this whole time, right, she's still an infanta. She's still controlling an enormous amount of territory that makes her wealthy, and yet, like, she's allowing... Like, she could just have Jimena killed, right? Like, yeah. in all reality, right? Like... If, if this, this whole Rodrigo thing is what she really wants, like, it's not out of line for a contemporary monarch to have anybody assassinated. Not that I'm telling a, a no. Catalan historian anything about, <laughs> about fratricide, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, it's not like she's got a twin sister to deal with, right? There's, there's this whole... Right. And, and to do it while she's embroidering as though Jimena is super down-to-earth this whole time and hasn't herself been orchestrating assassination plots... It's just, right. <laughs> were they watching the first part of the movie, or were they just letting it go? And all of this while Jimena and Uraka are both still way overdressed for just doing normal princess things. They really are. I will say, though, it's ridiculous, but I do really like Uraka's, like, Virgin Mary pin, <laughs> which looks like it's like... Like it's like this like giant medallion of the Virgin Mary with like some pearls stuck on it that she's just like wearing around. Right. It's, it sort of makes me think that they were on location. The actress saw it in a gift shop at a cathedral and was like, "Oh, I'm gonna yeah. wear that in the scene." Right. Like it's completely <laughs> yeah. out of place. Alfonso, now King of Castile, publicly forgives everyone who fought against him and supported his brother and calls on them to swear fealty. And of course, everyone does except for Rodrigo. And now we are finally getting into something that's actually in the Cantar right. del Mio Cid. So that's yeah. exciting. 98 minutes in, by the way. <laughs> I wrote it down specifically. <laughs> <laughs> And he explains that he'll only swear fealty if Alfonso then proves himself innocent by swearing that he is innocent of his brother's death. And on books instead of relics, that I'll accept, yeah. right? Because explain relics to a modern audience in the six to an audience in the sixties, right? Where... They would have been really confused if they just like pulled out somebody's arm bone. Right. Even if it wasn't like a fancy like little chest or something. Like why are yeah. they swearing on that treasure chest? Yeah. Oh, and then the fisticuffs come. Yeah, so he, like, drags his arm down to the books in this way that it's like, no wonder he exiled you, Jesus! Right, right, right. you couldn't have been chill about it, right? So then there's this kind of weird scene where then he basically is sitting, like, practically alone in a room reading a scroll in which he banishes Rodrigo because he has, quote, outraged the royal personage. A scroll which is written in Spanish, by the way. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Yes, for those listening at home who do not remember my previous language rants and are not medievalists, it should have been in Latin because everything pretty much should be written in Latin at this point, except, of course, for the Contemptum Yosid. But yes, yeah, certainly any royal decree. Uraka's gold dress is fantastic, I will say. Yeah, yeah. And for once, it actually is like, you know, it seems like the right fanciness level for the occasion. Yeah. It's a no, good, I mean, it's good a big banishment ceremony. dress. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. He now leaves. Apparently, Jimena just overhears this whole thing. Right. This apparently makes her change her mind and decide again that she's in love with Rodrigo and wants to follow him into exile. This is the least character development I've ever seen. Yeah, he's honorable in a way now that she's on board with. That whole thing is just something else. But of course, now that Jimena's following him, we're just going to leave all of that court decadence behind to a pair of scenes that are just really weird. They are utterly puzzling. So first there's this leper. Yeah, named Lazarus. Named Lazarus, <laughs> who somehow knows exactly who El Cid is. And mm-hmm. El Cid, of course, he's the one who, you know, gives him water, even though he's a leper and all of that. And in addition, yeah. this is also too early for the kind of ideas about contagion surrounding leprosy that are being implied right. here. But like, so I'm watching something like, is this dude just supposed to be like Jesus or something? Like, what is happening? It does kind of have a Martin of Tour feeling, doesn't it? Yeah. Where if, if El Cid gives him half his cloak, then we know he's a real saint. Because there's so many of these, uh, you know, medieval legends, you know, for the listeners at home, there's so many of these medieval legends in which the person demonstrates that they're a saint by being basically nice to some person who's poor or sick or etc. And then that person turns out to secretly be Jesus. And uh, that's how you know how this, how saintly this person is. So yeah, so that's right. what this almost seems like. But then it, of course, does not go anywhere. No, no, we never hear from this leper again. Even though this scene, like, this scene is so obviously shot on the Camino de Santiago that, like, and, and the leper himself has a, a Santiago shell on his walking stick, which I noticed and I was like, okay, now I need to stop, pause the movie and go do some more side work. Because I wanted to see, I've got this, there's a beautiful book for anybody that wants a great coffee table book about pilgrimage in the medieval world. It's called Being a Pilgrim. It's got all the really early Santiago iconography. And of course, like, that's, it's a little early to be widespread, but exactly why a leper is on pilgrimage. Right. Like, even at this point, it's a little early for this whole, like, cast out a leper, keep them away from the village bit. But, like, they're still not exactly everybody's favorite person, and they're just randomly walking across the peninsula to the, yeah. the Hill of Three Crosses. It's bizarre. Then, like, after this whole scene, Rodrigo and Jimena... Jimena, by the way, has, like, been following him and is now, like, gone from being, like, a little bit, okay, Rodrigo's not a bad guy, to being so completely in love that after this kid is, like, you can totally sneak into our barn and stay the night because we're not allowed to, to help you, but if we don't see you, it's fine... Which apparently is where Kimena becomes pregnant because it's the only time we ever see the two of them in any sort of romantic attachment, having their honeymoon in a barn. And like, (laughs) I get the whole idea of a rustic vacation and sure, everybody's idea of romance is different, but like rolling around in the hay in the 11th century is a really good way to get fleas. And like, I'm not going to say that fleas are, are, are universally rejected as a romantic idea, but... Hey, D. Lousing is very sexy, as we know from uh, from Montaigne. <laughs> wow, yeah. Which which of course then leads to the intermission, which had to just be a moment where, if it were later in the '60s, people could go and top off their LSD to get through the rest of the movie. Before the intermission, though, I just want to note the little girl who lets them hide in her barn also inexplicably knows exactly who both of them are and their entire (laughs) life story on site. Right, even though she's like seven. And then as they're coming out of the barn, there's just like an army Mm -hmm. that just also followed him. Yep, just appears. And also before the army shows up, Rodrigo does tell his wife to smile more because of course he does. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's Sophia Loren and Charlton Heston, so they have to be role models for the 60s, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I guess he tells her to smile more before he ditches her to run around with this army doing what? Yeah, that's never made clear, right? We're just no. going to skip over the fact that for a decade, El Cid makes himself fabulously wealthy by becoming a mercenary general in a way that is more like contemporary Muslim practice for exiled sons than it is for contemporary Christian practice. So, you know, we're just going to skip over that. And at the other side of the intermission, he's got a beard and a scar that tells you he's seen some shit. Yeah, and that's it. <laughs> that's all we know. <laughs> Who this army is. Like, exactly where did he go? What did he do with this army? There's no right. discussion of, like, did he accomplish anything? It's just so bizarre. Right. But, of course, because there's a nice intermission with yet more sketches of Barnes. So many sketches. And, like, okay, the sketches thing is, is typical of sword and sandal films. Fine. The big epic score, of course it would be. It's a three-hour movie that has its own intermission. But, like, why Barnes? Why not, like, maps of Sid's territory growing, right? Like, why not right. give people, like, who are paying attention in the intermission, who are just stretching their legs, getting a cocktail, whatever, then they can at least see, oh, El Cid is doing El Cid things, right? But no, we're just yeah. going to waste the intermission. Thus far, I would say, you know, we're, what, two and a two hours or so into this movie? Yes, we've got we got a little bit under an hour to go. Yeah, so, so a little over two hours in. Yeah. And there's been, like, one scene that is from the Cantar del Mio Cid. Yep. And and even that's a little bit flimsy and yeah. is missing characters. Mm -hmm. The intermission finally ends eventually. Four minutes and 38 seconds for those. Oh my God, it was interminable. Yeah. So we have 10 minutes of unnecessarily extra musical interlude. So then we cut back to what we have Alfonso, who has a great falcon. Yeah. And Uraka, oh, who's wearing this dress that's like a chessboard. And it's amazing. She looks like she could just lie down at a theme party. And if anybody asked where her costume was, she could be like, I'm the English exchequer. <laughs> Pay your taxes on me. It's, it's just nuts. Yeah. I love it, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's way too much. He has now called back the Sid, who, uh, you know, has a scar and a beard now, so. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, he's been some places. And he then throws himself to the floor, says, I've all these years hoped you would call me, especially now that even Yusuf has landed on our shores. How right. long did it take them? Yeah, it's it's not exactly clear that the Almoravids this whole time have been doing something else, but, like... Unless they've just been gobbling up territory that they never conquered, there's no reason it should have taken them eight years to get any of this done. Uh, yeah, because at this point he has these, as we'll see shortly, he has these children who are like, yes. what, seven? Nine? So, yeah, Nine. at least. Somewhere in there. Absolutely. Who've been raised in a convent. And so it's clearly taken quite a while. It was implied before the intermission that Ibn Yusuf basically had everything ready to go and was like, yeah... Valencian Amir, I'm landing momentarily. Right. So then it's like, what was he doing? Right. Yeah. He took a nap. There were, he actually, there were a lot of poets who needed to be taught how to use a sword. That's, that's probably what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Getting the doctors to move along to that poison already. Well, you know, poison takes a while to test, right? So that's, well. you know, that, that explains that. As to what exactly the scar and the beard are from, we never find out, right? It's just, nope. it's just this like, psychic wink towards something has happened. We have no idea who he's been fighting or why. Right. And given that he is presented as basically just leading this random band of armed men. Right. It's like, are, are you doing something that 
anyone might consider helpful? Are you just marauding? <laughs> Randomly plundering the countryside. Right. I'm glad we didn't get anything more in that regard, like some weird intervening scene to explain what was up, but there's just so much of this movie where you want to know, like, what scene didn't you film that would have explained this, right? What's the director's cut of this movie look like? What, what What's the seven-hour version where any of the, like, beard-growing army-leading stuff is explained? Not that I want a seven-hour version of this movie, but, like, wow. Right. Not to mention, I can think of approximately, like, seven scenes that I would have cut mm-hmm. and instead had, like, one scene of him being in a battle. Right. The, we don't get a battle, really. I mean, we get some, like skirmishes and fisticuffs but we don't get a big battle right. scene till the like last 15 minutes of the movie where it's almost it's like so weird. like oh man it's el cid we really need to have a battle scene here yeah he shows up and is told that he is supposed to be going to Sagrajas for the battle there <laughs> and uh, instead informs alfonso no you should take valencia <laughs> and then also brings in all of his muslim friends <laughs> And Alfonso just basically just immediately tells him to fuck off because apparently he's just never spoken to a Muslim before and of course never would. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't live in Toledo for five years and hasn't in the meanwhile, like, I mean, if, if it's supposed to be Sagrajas actually, right? So they've skipped forward five and a half years. Okay. So that explains where the kids came from. Mm -hmm. Explains why we're getting ready for Sagrajas, even though we don't know what that's where the battle's going to be. Whatever. Right. Medieval people knew Mm -hmm. exactly where battles were going to take place in advance. (laughs) There's Um, just a plan. You have to go to Sagrajas. That's, that's where the fisticuffs are. Get there. Yeah. You have to be on Sagrajas on July 30th. Right. And right. uh, that's, and and that's, 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 it's it's on my Google calendar. Yep. (laughs) That's right. There's been an outlook invite, which people had to sign in for. And you know, like all of, that is happening while Alfonso should have taken Toledo so he should be in a completely different place but he's not because of course Spain has a capital question mark right and of course that we've skipped the conquest of Toledo which is very important right and would have been a fantastic scene because it's completely unarmed right like Alfonso just walks through the north gate the churro stall isn't there yet but he could have walked past the churro stall at the bisagra and just (laughs) wandered in like, past the Roman circus, up the hill, hey, I'm great, this is how big a deal I am, right? Like, and even if they wanted yeah. to 60s it up and say, like, the Muslims there just gave up their arms because Alfonso's so great. Wow. Yeah. El Cid responds, uh, sire, you risk having no Spain at all, to which my response is, well, I mean, yeah, it's not like he does have Spain. Right. No, there, there's no such place, but okay. Yeah, I mean, because this is, I guess, the point at which Alfonso does kind of start to use this, like, grandiose title yeah. of uh, the Emperor of All Spain. Right, right. But the fact that then everybody just starts referring uncritically to Spain yeah. from this point on... Is just drives me insane as somebody who studies Aragon, which very much is a place that is not on board with Castile, you know, calling itself Spain or implying that they have right. some kind of sovereignty over the king of Aragon. Right, right. And like, even if you want to, and I think it's fair to say that Menendez Pidal, right, if he's sort of influencing any of this, is getting a lot of pressure from Franco, right? Because Franco's always terrified yes. of. of Basque and Catalan separatism. And as we're speaking right now, like that, that story is still taught being, being bandied around in, in the media and in, in modern Spanish politics. But 
even if we uncritically accept Alfonso's use of Imperator Totius Hispaniae, right, uh, the emperor of all of Spain, he's not the first one to do this, right? His dad does it. No. But, like, it's always this sort of thing where, like, when all the kings are gathered, one guy gets his wine cup filled first. It's not any any sort of, like, yeah. massive imperial project on the scale that, like, Frederick II would be cool with. Not to mention it's not a title that's meaningfully acknowledged by anyone, including either people over whom he would be the emperor right. or other sovereigns, right. or any other sovereigns right. for that matter. It's always in, in, in Alfonso or Fernando's charters where he's like, oh, by the way, yeah. I'm Alfonso, emperor of all the Spains, king of Castile, Toledo, Galicia, Najera, right? And he just, he laundry lists. And everyone's like, yeah, that's nice. Right, yeah. Cool story, bro. Then this whole Valencia thing, there's just this moment where Rodrigo is like, all right, yeah, I'll be back for Sagrajas, whatever. I'm going to go do my Valencia project because he can just do that because why is he back at Alfonso's court? He called him. Right. Yeah. They, you know, on his cell phone. And they, they just, they're, they're just going to hug it out, I guess, maybe, sort of. Except I guess not because Alfonso gets upset about the fact that Muslims exist. Yeah. Which, you know... <laughs> haven't been financing his entire kingdom this whole time. Nope. Oof. He's never met a Muslim before nope. and is shocked to see them at his court. Yeah. Shocked. And of course, he can tell because they're dressed differently and they're all in brown face. Yep. Oof. It's it's, the, it's really the brown paint is really, you know, how you would know somebody was a Muslim yep. in, uh, in medieval Spain. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're not... <laughs> ugh, leaving aside the fact that Alfonso... No, you know what? We're not even going to go into the fact that Alfonso can probably sign his name in Arabic. Like... That's a whole other podcast yep. episode. Yep. <laughs> so meanwhile, Alcid is going to bail and do his own Valencia thing. And as you do when you're reuniting with friends, he meets some friends. We don't know their friends yet, right? Of course, because there's got to be the big reveal. And they just bro hug it out <laughs> in the middle of a river. Yep. And they just, like, run across the river, meet in the middle, and then hug. And then the armies that each of them have are like, yay, right. we're all friends now. Right, we can also have a big what? friendship hug. And so I tried to figure out what river this could possibly be, right? Because it's it's kind of supposed to be also, like, the only Muslim leader that's on Team Sid is, is the Emir of Zaragoza, even though, like, Al-Mutamid is not right. exactly on, on Team El Cid the whole time, right? There's always this ambivalence. But, like, what river it could possibly be that they could be meeting at. And, like, the only candidates are really, like, the Duero, the Ebro, or the Tahoe that are, like, big boundary rivers, right? And none right. of them are that small. If you and I tried to hug it out in the middle of the Ebro, we would be dead. <laughs> like, we would be drowning and floating <laughs> down river. And, like, maybe if we're lucky, we get bonked on the head by a piece of flotsam before we get out to the Mediterranean. There's no way. No. He also briefly does see his wife for the first time. It, what is apparently the first time in, like, five or so years or whatever. Right, she's been in a And convent. they have these twin girls who have no idea who he is. Nope. Just literally none. Nope. Which is such a bummer because, like... In the Cantar, constantly back and forth, Sid's best boy, who happens to almost be a bishop at this point, like, he's not a bishop yet, but he's clearly El Cid's choice, is constantly, like, in the story, ferrying Jimena and the girls back and forth between the convent mm -hmm. where they spend the summer while El Cid's campaigning and, like, wherever they're holed up for the winter, right? So they missed all these cool travel yeah. scenes, they missed having a cool sidekick. And, like, all to just put Sophia Loren in a convent. Yeah, this kind of very uncomfortable thing, too, that it's like, oh, well, the men travel and war and do all these things, and the women just stay in this one convenient location and do not move. Right. And then, even though Valencia goes off well, and in 
real historical life, El Cid, like, the first thing he does is send tribute to Alfonso VI to, like, be cool. Alfonso is furious, apparently, that El Cid has taken Valencia and not gotten back to the battle in time. No thank you for taking Valencia. Right. Right, leaving aside the fact that it's a massive port city, it gives them a huge buffer zone, it gives them, like, a way to check, even if we wanted to resurrect the whole Aragon-Catalonia thing, like, it's a huge check on on expansion from the northeast. Of course, important given that Valencia does eventually end up being part of the crown of Aragon, so... Right, it's not like there isn't some value there, like, even if he's just bringing in, like, a basket of oranges, you could very easily get that symbolic moment where this whole time El Cid has actually been wanting Alfonso to be the best king, and, like, then this whole story could make sense. But instead, we, we like, turn back this whole, does Alfonso want Jimena? He's just apparently raiding convents to, like, find people. And completely ignoring the laws of sanctuary and taking somebody who's in a convent, dragging them out and imprisoning them. I think we're supposed to feel at least, like, a modicum of empathy, if not sympathy, for Alfonso, because Jimena is, like, really not being very polite about it. Like, because, of course, when you're captured, you're, you're just supposed to be, like, you're supposed to smile. Women should smile more. Well, that's, I mean, that's, cl- that's, <laughs> that's clearly one of the important themes of this movie. Um, yeah, it's just nuts. And then, yeah. and then all of that is, like, somehow going to give... El Cid, the reason that he can finally attack Alfonso? They're gonna go at it? Like, what? Yeah, and then there's this awkward, like, well, I'm in Valencia, but no, I'm going to go to Burgos and get my wife and children, who I see approximately every five years. Mm -hmm. And then there's this, like, all of a sudden, completely out of nowhere, Ordonez comes back, Mm -hmm. has decided that he is super into and impressed by El Cid and is going to help Jimena and the children escape and then fight for El Cid. Yep, sure thing. Also, not made clear at all how this whole process works, how else it no like, they meet in this, like, mountain in the middle of nowhere. Right. Like, how did they know to meet there? Well, and the, the crazy part is, like, Ordonez is Count of Nahera, so it's not like there isn't yeah. a place where they could meet that's, like, sort of at the very periphery of Alfonso's territory, right? Or, Ordonez yeah. just all of a sudden turns babyface and is working with El Cid, even though this whole time he's been a total heel. Like, El Cid is supposed to yeah. drop a beat down on Ordonez. That's how this should work. But instead of, like, basic yeah. good guy, bad guy storytelling in both the larger arena of movie storytelling and in the, the medieval storytelling, like, he just turns, and that's it. Yeah. The, the part that disappoints me the most about that, too, is there's not even, like, a good bro hug. Like, if they would have hugged it out, I would have no. been like, okay, apparently something has gone on that we're not being told, all right, whatever, right? Maybe that's where he got the scar. But like, no, we're just gonna, whoop, we're gonna jump another scene, because why not? Now we're all back in Valencia, so that's great. Yeah, so whatever happened in Burgos, he bailed her out, like they actually did get her out, and... What is also this random location that they met somewhere between just Burgos and Valencia? Yeah, there isn't a good spot. I looked. No. The only place that's under Christian control or in the Taifa of Zaragoza at the time that maybe makes sense would have been like a Segovia or a Siguenza, like somewhere that's sort of yeah. on the path up north and west. But like all of the territories that make good sense for like large cities are either under Alfonso's control or under Taifa states that are under Alfonso's control or influence. They literally must have just been like, hey, you know that rock that looks sort of like somebody's nose? Let's meet underneath it, right? Like yeah. it's just the worst spycraft ever. Yeah. Again, a number of, like, time compression. By the time they get back to Valencia, Ibn Yusuf 
is on his way with his armada finally across the mediterranean which doesn't make sense nope okay so so for non-specialists it's worth noting that most of the almoravid heartland is on the western coast of what we now recognize as morocco and the western sahara and not in the the northern parts of Africa that would later be Almohad territory, right? Where there are actually places where you could launch ships and sail across, right? Ibn Yusuf is crossing through tons of different port towns, going past a whole bunch of different places where he could land an army and make a formal assault, but instead he's just going to sail the whole way to Valencia. No, it's ridiculous. So they've been, for some indeterminate amount of time, laying siege to Valencia. Yeah. And then encourage the people of Valencia that they should surrender voluntarily so that they can all fight together against Ibn Yusuf, a thing that is apparently for some reason, compelling, I guess, especially when you then catapult bread over the walls and start food riots. Yeah, I wanted to know if the Pythons had seen this before they made Holy Grail, because we're about 13 years before Holy right. Grail. They they launch bread and vegetables, and I swear, and I, I hope that I wasn't, like, having some kind of episode, but I swear there was a chicken at some point. Like, somebody launched a roast chicken. <laughs> like, not a live one, but, like, there's just a chicken in the background, because, like, one of the extras thought it would be funny. But, like... Yeah, And then, like, the food riot gets the emir on the inside to be like, well, this guy's clearly cleverer than we are, right? Like, as though an, a medieval army is, A, just supplied with fresh vegetables all the time. Right. <laughs> B, would put them in catapults, which they don't have, and yeah. would then, like, somehow the food riot gets other people to be like, oh, he must be clever. He must be El Said at the beginning of the movie where he's just super brilliant. Also, not to mention that if you're, like, catapulting a big, like, loaf of probably slightly stale Spanish crusty bread over the wall, no way that doesn't hit a child in the head and kill them. Right. If it's even heavy enough to get there, right? Like, if you try to to yeah. throw something that's lighter than it seems, everybody, I mean, everybody's done it, right? Like, if you've been practicing with, like, a, a, a Nerf ball or something... Uh, or with a regular football and then you throw a Nerf ball. It's weird. It's like too light. Catapults are not made to launch bread. A boulder and a loaf of bread are very different things. Right. And like, what is the size of these catapults? Right. That they're... Right, that they can launch a loaf. (laughs) Yeah, or like a cabbage. One cabbage. Right. Yeah, this this whole battle scene as a sort of prelude to the later one, like, as a, as a visual contrast, right? Like, the, the Almoravids. The Amir of Valencia eventually finds himself surrounded and then is, gets, like, thrown off a wall, which everyone is very, very happy about, apparently. Right, because why why wouldn't you just Conrad of Montferrat somebody? Yep, else it is welcomed, and everyone is delighted that he's in charge now. Right, because they were just waiting for the Amir to be gone, right? Like, that was the real issue. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and to, to be fair, I mean, that's to some extent is an Elsa, this kind of, like, we love you, buddy. Right, like, he's just got such a high charisma score that he just gets everybody to do what he wants. Yeah, does. yeah, so so to be fair, that's not entirely the fault of this film. That's, that's, a, that's at least as sort of the source material. Right, right. His buddies all encourage him to take the crown for himself and proclaim himself King of Valencia. He instead, of course, takes the kingdom in honor of Alfonso, whom he describes as the, quote, king of Spain. Sure. A country. Right. Why not? <laughs> I, I definitely will say I am, like, especially irritated about this right now. Like, as specifically, like, a Catalanist 
talking about this like very soon after the Catalan leaders involved in the referendum have been given 10 years sentences. Right. In in scary prison, too. They're not going to Martha Stewart yeah. prison. No, they're it's like real prison. Yeah. <laughs> this like insistent talking about Spain in, you know, 1961 under Franco right. is just so... Right. And like 25 years beforehand, horrifying. he's been doing some pretty awful things in Valencia and in Catalonia. I mean, in Catalonia especially. But like, especially yeah. Valencia is one of those early places in the war where he's just ruining entire towns. Yeah. The king of Spain needs to be acknowledged as overlord in Valencia. Yep. That's not even close to subtle. Yeah. <laughs> you can yeah. feel the the army's influence in that. Oh, yes. His friend says, uh, you know, what a noble subject. If only he had a noble king. <laughs> yeah. What? Like Franco, I guess. Right, right. Well, and you know, like he's waiting for one Carlos. <laughs> the crown of Valencia is sent to Alfonso with no conditions, although his man suggests that in thanks of all that the Cid has done for you and Spain, yep. Alfonso should then support him in the subsequent fight against Ibn Yusuf. And Uraka then basically just, like, tells him to fuck off. And then Alfonso just throws her to the ground because, like, there hasn't been enough violence against women. So we need to get some in before the movie ends. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't just beat up Jimena. It just felt like this movie was almost trying to be like, in Spain we value real traditional gender roles. All of the smile more domestic violence being glossed over stuff it, it was a special level of bad yeah though i will say at least this movie this movie does pass my very very low bar test <laughs> which is that there has to be one named female character that doesn't die that's true and there are two i don't count the daughters because i don't think anyone ever says their no, names. no i don't think so which is which is another thing that's that's sort of Alcid's daughters are not only named but do a lot of stuff. Like, they are important characters in the concept. Yeah. Now, granted, they're important characters in the way that medieval female characters often are in, in chivalric stuff, where, you know, sometimes they're active and sometimes they're these sort of masculinity reflectors for all the problems with the Infantes de Carion. But, like, it is sort of strange that, that more isn't done with, with Uraka and, and with her sister, right, who should also be there, and with Jimena and right. with their daughters. Yeah. Leaving aside the fact that at this point, at this point in the history... Alfonso has um, a formerly Muslim wife as mm -hmm. his queen. His first two wives have died. He's on his third wife, Zaida, who takes the name Isabel. We're just going to gloss over that fact, which could have been like another one of those. Like if you're going to redo the yeah. movie, you know, here's how to fix it. But that would also then, of course, complicate his awkward semi-incestuous relationship with his sister, though, if he had a wife. Well, that's, so. that's true. All of this is to say, after this, we get... If I've got my chronology right, my notes at this point are getting more and more all caps. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, there's just a random crucifixion, but like, yep. but not an accurate one. No, Ibn Yusuf just like throws up this like awkward diagonal cross yeah. and crucifies Ordonez. Yeah, Ordonez is crucified on a cross that's Y-shaped, because apparently Ibn Yusuf is, an, is, is secretly an Assyrian warlord 2,000 years too late. And, like, he's tied to the cross. Okay, fine. He hasn't been put up yet. The nails are, like, sort of off screen, and you can kind of tell they, like, put it through his fingers to make right. it look kind of right, even though, you know, properly speaking, in a crucifixion, it goes through your through your wrists and through your um, the, yeah. the joint around your ankles. But, like, all of that is to say, why is Ibn Yusuf crucifying people? 
no idea. I looked in Almoravid Chronicles. There ain't no crucifixions. No. Why is he crucifying people other than to make him seem like an even more bad guy? Right. I mean, so there's a like 10th century rebel against, uh, like, I think it's like right before they declare the Caliphate of Cordoba, right. who gets crucified, right. which is like a completely different context. And the Almoravids and the Umayyads are very different culturally, right? They, oh, they're from yeah. Very, like, Absolutely. The, the Almoravids are these Sanhaja tribesmen, tax reformers, whereas like by the time of Abdurrahman, they're like constantly trying to prove that they're the real Muslims in the area. And in doing so, yeah. crucifixion is a good way to demonstrate their, their separateness from these, these mildly Christian rebels who are participating in this whole thing. But like this is all just to get Ibn Ben Yusuf Ibn Tafshuvin over as a bad guy. Like he's he's just yeah. as if they're they're then like the attack that they then launch, which is at the nighttime, because apparently Almoravids are Urukai from Lord of the Rings. Like we're just yep. we're just gonna gloss over they they can't be out in the sunlight. Yeah, they have. They, Although to be fair, given given the murkas, I can kind of see why they'd want to attack they, in the night. They have dark vision. They they have night vision goggles. Yeah, it's, it's totally legit. Because yeah, Valencia in the summer is brutal. Wow, well, I mean, and that's fair. <laughs> this whole battle scene just screams. Some Hollywood producer thought that we needed all this stuff. Like they have fourteen yeah. siege towers. The conquest of Jerusalem in the same year has five. Yeah. <laughs> But Valencia has 30. Like, yeah. where did the Almoravids even get all this siege equipment? They just brought it on their boats? In the Armada. Yeah. <laughs> each, each Armada. And also, one of these siege towers, by the way, like the one that like even Yusuf like, seems particularly associated with, has these like longhorn cow skulls yeah, on them? Yeah, for no reason. It's insane yeah. as a choice. Yeah. I, my favorite part is that the Armada is always kind of in the background, but it almost looks like they're ships on like sticks that somebody just, like, planted in the, the harbor. Like, yeah, we can't afford the whole boat. Yeah. Let's just put, like, boat silhouettes out there. They're also, like, black-veiled to match Ibn Yusuf, well, yeah. so you know that they're his boats. Well, yeah, yeah, because the only way you can tell a boat apart from another boat is if it's the same color as the people that are uniformed to be on it. I mean, boats just gradually come to resemble their owners like dogs. Right, that's that's right, that's right. There's no amount of, of cleverness there. And leaving aside the fact that, like, all of those siege towers are completely unarmored and uncovered, right? There's no leather on top of them, which is fine, right? El Cid doesn't have access to fire. And, like, their catapults are all exactly the same catapults. Like, at one point, I was looking to see, yeah. like, if they had, like, some some working catapults and then like just prop ones in the background and if i could tell the same mm -hmm. i also want to add in a note about the wild el cid jesus other bit yeah. that happens here wow where even yusuf asks the dying ordonias like do you believe that your leader cannot die and he's like yeah no he definitely can't die and then yusuf qualifies that by asking if he can't die like the prophet muhammad like, what well, have they... Do they know anything about Islam? Right, well, I mean, like, leaving aside the fact that, okay, maybe Menendez Pidal is just confusing Almoravids and Almohads, and he right. doesn't have great Arabic because he's not Huisi Miranda, and they always have this little, like, feud between the two of them over whose students should get jobs. Okay, fine. Maybe he's mistaken the... Al but, like, even the Almohads don't think the Prophet Muhammad is immortal. Like... This, yeah. they're, they're machtis. They, they're looking... No one thinks that. That's, uh, yeah. So, not only... That's literally, like, deeply against the tenets of Islam. Yeah. Well, and, like, leaving aside the fact that we rarely say the word Islam in this whole movie, there are frequent yeah. uses of, like, Mohammedan, 
Which, where is Washington Irving when we need to slap him? Yeah. Like, there's just so much about this that screams 1960s, know that Islam is a thing, but they're not exactly sure what it is. Yeah. So then this is apparently a battle between our god, Mohammed, and your god, El Cid, which is just such a deep misunderstanding of both Christianity and Islam, and it's fascinating. Yeah. No, I I didn't know that El Cid had undergone any kind of apotheosis. I guess he does have a beard and a scar, so so he spent his 40 days in the wilderness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I... That's actually what happened, is that he died and was resurrected, and he's the Messiah. That's what happened in that that six years of the intermission. Yep, yep. That's that's why the uh, intermission just had pictures of barns, because, of course, the resurrection had had to take place in a barn. Which which explains he and Jimena rolling around in the hay, because, of course, that's the last temptation of the barn king. Yep. I love, too, that, that Ibn Yusuf is crucifying a really valuable hostage while... Real-life Ibn Tafshufin is super interested in taking as many hostages as he can so that he can keep up his tax reform program by dumping all that money into their budget. Yeah, because that's a strategy that makes sense. Unlike these strategies practiced by anyone in this movie. Yeah, wow. Guys yeah. guys who have never played Risk. They go into this wild battle in which the Sid does eventually get uh, shot with an arrow and is kind of brought back wounded, clearly not doing well. Turns out that they have this whole thing. You went, okay, you can leave the arrow in, in which case he's definitely going to die, or you can pull the arrow out, in which case he'll like really need to sit and recover for a while. But like he'll probably he'll like he might live. Yeah. So he then insists on no, leave the arrow in because the most important thing is that I personally absolutely have to be alive or dead on a horse leading the troops tomorrow. Right, because he couldn't get on the horse while wounded and bandaged up. Right, like that's just right. Alfonso also just shows up. Right. I don't know what he's doing or how he got there and how he got past enemy lines. Right. Elcida says, if only I could live to see Spain in peace, to which I wrote down in my notes, that'll take you about 400 years. Yeah, if you're lucky. And, that, and that's just to see Spain. Right. Not even the in peace part. No, no, no. <laughs> no. This last battle is so over the top. The scene of, yeah. which, like, which of course isn't in any of the contemporary accounts, comes from a much later chronicle. Sid being dead on his horse, riding into battle anyway. Because right. of course, like, just seeing him, like, nobody's going to realize that, like, he's definitely pretty stiff. Dude is dead. Right. Like, leaving aside the fact that the chronology could, could be compressed and, like, so maybe he's in rigor mortis. Yeah. His physical presence, as though he's a saint and these are relics. And, by the way, he's all in white at this point, even though he hasn't been fighting in Uh all white the whole time. Nope. Just randomly showing up and, like, is trying to rally everybody. Wow. We're also not going to notice that, like, he's not doing anything because he can't, because he's dead. So he's not directing the horse. So the horse is just galloping off wildly. Into the distance. The horse, with his corpse on it, just happens to trample Ibn Yusuf. Yep. Just coincidentally. Yep. I guess his, I guess Babieca knew the horse, uh, just knows. Right. Well, I mean, you know, as one does when you're a magical horse, right? Like, this is, right. this is like Bucephalus getting a city named after him when Alexander of Macedon is super bummed that he finally dies. Like, and this is Lord of the Rings. Like, this is Lord of the Rings and, like, Aragorn's, like, magic horse right. who, like, comes and finds him when he falls off a cliff. Right. Or Shadowfax being able to just traverse the entire continent in a night, right? Like, Babieca yeah. has some serious levels in being a good horse, right? He is he is an awesome, yeah. awesome steed. And of course, yeah. the trampling 
is apparently what kills Ibn Yusuf, not an assassination attempt, which would have been a much cooler nope. story. But they would never do an assassination attempt because they are honorable. Right. And and the best part is like the 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 mirroring of Bobby Eka trampling Ibn Yusuf slash Ibn Tafshufin, right? After El Cid like completely no cells getting trampled by a horse in the duel sixteen hours ago in this damn movie, where when he gets trampled, he not only, like, does the horse seem to be hurt more by trampling him, but in the process, he, like, gets up and is just like, oh, whatever, I'm fine. But, like, with one's minor trampling, Bobby Aka is just, bam, takes out Ibn Yusuf. Yep. <laughs> All good. Such yep. a horse. And then, of course, you also have, like, the, like, last bit that you see of his family is, like, Jimena's like, yes, let me take out my, like, six-year-old children to, like, watch their father's rotting corpse being dragged on a horse across the field. Right, even though they're going to live in Valencia for another three years, but we're just going to skip over that yeah. cool part where she's basically, she and Geronimo basically hold down Valencia, even though one of them is a bishop and the other is a, a random countess. With very little support, yeah. they're somehow still able to hold out for three more years after Rodrigo dies. Which is amazing. <laughs> the last kind of big line is, of course, as he goes out, is the, uh, and the Cid rode out of the gates of history into legend, which could just be the, basically, description of this movie. Yeah, well, and backwards, too, right? Like, he rides out of a legend yeah. into history. Awkwardly. <laughs> Which then segues into uh, our next section, Vera et Falso. Or, so what did they get true or false? What did they get right? What did they get wrong? We've already, I definitely uh, covered a decent amount of this, which is, uh, I think, especially symptomatic of the fact that when there are two medievalists, it is difficult to contain the annoyance about the level of things that they did not get right in this movie. Yeah, the the Michigas alone generated by the historical inaccuracies in this movie could fill an entire six podcast episodes and we would be going for three hours more than any part of this movie should ever have gone. There is certainly even more that we have not yet said. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I also wanted to note in particular that I skipped kind of when it happened at the beginning of the movie is that so they have the whole thing where El Cid is kind of given the name El Cid and they go on for like a paragraph about like all of the like extensive connotations of the like associations of honor with being with you know being named El Cid and you know, in this, and it's, you know, and in this uh, kind of Arabic word that, you know, for it's like a great leader who, you know, knows mercy and all of this, like, very complicated detail. No. Right. It's the Arabic word, like, Sayyid, like, it's like Al-Sayyid, and it's just basically, like, a vague honorific right. for right. person who I report to, essentially. Right. And sometimes in, in modern Arabic, it's not even really, like, much of an honorific. It's, it's something like mm-hmm. boss. Like, you could call your shift manager if you worked at a subway al-Sayyid and not be in too much trouble. Like, leave alone. Yeah. And sure, you know, like, in, in using that example, right, you can kind of get the feeling of, like, the boss. Like, he's like he's Snake yeah. out of Metal Gear Solid's leader. Or he's Bruce Springsteen. Okay, sure, there's, there's some mojo to that. But, like, it's certainly not any sort of magical poetic title that just conveys upon someone the ability for everyone in the whole movie to know who he is, what he's up to, and completely up to date on all of his latest problems. He is somehow a tabloid right. and, star yeah. just from having this title that they mistranslate. Right, and nor is there this like litany of moral qualities automatically associated with right. it. And so, I mean, the actual way that he got the name is, of course, that like, he basically is then serving kind of as a general under the Amir of Zaragoza. Right. And that's basically kind of what it then means in context is basically like you are in charge of this sector of the art of like an army. Right. right. He's literally a mercenary general. 
Yeah. There's a lot to the use of things that aren't quite Arabic in this movie as a whole, but I think that's the part where it starts off and it's just so bad. As we've already kind of hinted at, it also is not in a lot of ways a great adaptation of uh, the Cantar de Mio Cid. No, which is sad because their historical advisor, he didn't edit that per- the, the best version of it, but he sure as heck had someone do it, right? This is a guy, yeah. Ramon Menendez-Pidal, who either edits or directs the edition of some of the really big Castilian chronicles, right? Whether it be the, the, the so-called Primera Cronica General, this first general history of Spain under Alfonso X, he must have been cringing about some of this stuff. Yeah, and, it's so, and it bizarrely skips all of the military stuff, which I would right. say is in some ways largely the point of this kind of very war-centered epic poem. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't think you, I don't think you can have the Cantar de Mio Cid. If you, like, cut out all the battle scenes, it'd be Cid tricking people Sid borrowing money, Sid's friend Jeronimo riding around with his wife, maybe a couple scenes where his new sons-in-law, who of course aren't even in the movie, right? Like, talk about characters that are missing. Because they can't be in the movie because his daughters are sick. Right. And, like, (laughs) all of that is happening. Like, there's no story there, right? There's no chivalric tale in a guy that fights two battles, sort of. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's the other thing, too, is that there's all of these other kind of big pieces that are very prominent that, again, are just completely missing. So the whole episode with his daughters being married to the Infantes de Carillon, mm-hmm. who then, you know, beat them and leave them for dead. After, I mean, yeah, beat them and let's let's leave it at that. It's a much worse story. And if anybody wants to read it, yeah, you should know that there is some some seriously triggering content in that part of the Cantar de Mio Cid. Yeah. Suffice it to say, these princes these commodal rank guys who are marrying the Sid's twin daughters are not at all good individuals. And in one scene, and I can't believe they left this scene out. In one scene, El Cid has a pet lion in Valencia and the lion gets out of his cage as lions are wont to do exactly where he gets the lion. Mm-hmm. Like the, the cantar doesn't exactly talk that much about, but the lion gets out and it's people just have lions. Well, yeah, it's I fine. Mean, of course you do. You have a pet lion if you're in Spain, as we know. Uh, <laughs> so, the lion breaks out, is terrifying his sons-in-law, and, like, El Cid just, like, they wake him up, they're like, hey, fam, your lion got out, it's it's gonna eat your sons-in-law, and he's just like, alright, and he gets out of bed, walks over to the lion, grins at it, the lion's just like, oh, snap, I'm in trouble, gets down on all fours, and then he grabs it by the scruff of the neck, laughs, and walks it back into the cage. Charlton Heston is made for that scene! Yes, that would have been an amazing scene. Like, if they would have done that, then all of that, like, he's got larger-than-life charisma. Everybody's drawn to him, right? The the Uraka love triangle thing, that everybody not knowing what side he's on because they disagree with him, but they're drawn to him. Like, you could have done a lot with that. Like, Charlton Heston, for all the, yeah. the, the, you know, this movie and his later history of advocacy after the civil rights movement is problematic. Like, he was legitimately a sex symbol, for Hollywood males in mm-hmm. the period, right? Like, you can see him pulling that role off. And it's, it's frustrating because the idea of his charisma relies entirely just on Charlton Heston being charismatic, right. which not that he isn't, but he doesn't do anything that really explains that level of charisma. Right, especially in a medieval world that's very much show-don't-tell. They do a lot more yeah. telling than showing in this movie. Yeah. So that's really disappointing is that it's really not in a great, in a lot of ways, a great adaptation of El Cid. Right. And then also, as we've talked about, like, it's such a mess in terms of the chronology. Mm-hmm. None of it makes sense. Uh, they cut out, uh, you know, two of the span- of the uh, the Castilian royal siblings. Mm-hmm. Yep. <sighs> the two legitimate ones, too. I mean, and that's the... Yes. 
So I, I made a list in preparing for Very at Falso. My list is titled People Who Should Be Dead at the start of this movie. Fernando of Leon Castile should be dead. Sancho should be dead. Uh-huh. Three of their siblings who should be in the movie are not. Garcia should be imprisoned, but of course that never happens. Jimena's father should be dead. Rodrigo's father should be dead. Along with, if Ibn Yusuf is Ibn Yusuf, he's not supposed to be alive because Yusuf Ibn Tafshufin hasn't had kids at this point, or at least not any sons. So, like, there's all of that. Right. There's there's all kinds of, of missing characters that either should be dead or should be alive in this movie that just aren't there. Yeah, and that's a kind of bizarre choice, too, is that it's clearly supposed to be, uh, it's clearly supposed to be Yusuf Ibn Tafshin. Yep. But then they just call him Ibn Yusuf. Right. Which is just a bizarre choice. I mean, why can't they just call him Yusuf? Well, and the, the best part is that they often don't even, like, they don't pronounce Ibn, right? They make him Ben Yusuf as though Ben is his first name. Yes. Like, it's Ben Hur. Yes. And like, damn, that's the same reason. Like, yes. And then also, that I will say especially annoyed me, especially because the word Ben is then the just Hebrew version of Eben right. in this movie that just aggressively pretends Jews do not exist. Right. Despite the fact that there are Jewish characters in El Cid from whom he borrows money. Right. And, and who, who play an important role in setting the Cid character early on, right? Because the whole, like, he yeah. borrows money with false collateral that's supposed to make him look clever, right? And, you know, the, the problematic, um, anti-Judaic turned anti-Semitic um, stereotypes of, of medieval juries and money aside, right? Like that's a big scene for a medieval audience because he's out moneying characters that are supposed to just know how money works, like intrinsically. All of the yeah. medieval stereotypes about juries and money lending are, are supposed to be inverted and like are supposed to be proof of how clever else it is, which is the other thing that that is really missing from his character and that enlightening the Jewish characters out of the story really screws up is that like El Cid is never a great general because he's great at motivating leaders or because he's great at like organizing mm-hmm. forces. It's because he's really good at tricking people. Like he's constantly pulling hijinks. Yeah, which makes the then turn of him being this kind of honorable to the point of stupidity, yeah. being the way his character is ultimately presented, being in a lot of ways just a vastly different portrayal yeah. from this character who is quite willing to trick people and do things that, you know, might be considered by some to not be entirely that honorable. Yeah, and all of the symbols that that look like somebody looked at a book that's called like Spanish heraldic crest and went, oh, this one's pretty. Let's put this one on a background character. And, like, it's from Denmark. Yeah. Like, there are so many Danish gold cross on red background crests that are completely out of context. Yeah. It's also, I would say, for the most part, art historically, a disaster. Oh, for sure. And that, as I said, I think I mentioned before that there are these things that are clearly paintings that are supposed to be, like, in the apses of churches that are just framed and plopped mm-hmm. on a wall of a palace. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that. There's, I'm pretty sure there's actually, like, a shot of a cathedral that's from the 13th century. Yeah. Yeah, no, so they, they do, as the backdrop, the Cathedral of Burgos, not the side that normally you walk up to, so if anybody is, is planning a trip to the Camino de Santiago and listening, or is thinking about seeing um, the northern parts of Spain, which are, uh, despite what your normal host will tell you, um, actually the prettiest parts of Spain, the best parts of Spain. In Burgos, there's a side that, that they are using to frame it, and it's not the side you enter, it's not the pilgrimage side, it's not the triumphal sacral side, it's sort of like the back door-ish of this amazing mm-hmm. Gothic cathedral, which by Teresa Whitcomb's estimation is sort of this first hybrid and attempt to bring Gothic architecture in full vogue into the the city, which they're not going to tell you um, in the, in this movie that that building that they're putting in front of was consecrated by or, or was inaugurated by a bishop who was himself a Mossadab, 
right? So this Arabic-speaking mm-hmm. Christian from Toledo who goes to school in Paris, who ends up becoming Bishop of Burgos, builds this massive, massive cathedral, which is the backdrop for some really important scenes in this movie. The, the swearing of the oath, yeah. the sort of standing in front of big buildings outside stuff is there mm-hmm. and it's it, it's absolutely just disastrously funny the one thing that i will say i appreciated from an art historical perspective is that they do i will say pretty consistently all of the crucifixes are like the jesus who is very relaxed about being crucified yeah, yeah they don't have sad jesus yeah which is the earlier practice and which would have been the one in the 11th century as opposed to the kind of later development of you know the suffering christ on the cross right right and the nice thing is that even though he's wearing a crown in most of those, it's not a crown of thorns, right? So it's not it's not yeah. post Latin Empire sending all these relics back after the Fourth Crusade, which is nice. Like there, and that's the thing, right? Yeah. That's I think that's what made it the most frustrating for me is not that there were some historical inaccuracies, right? Because watching a film like this with our background, like it's just going to drive you crazy. So I yeah. was willing to accept if there are inaccuracies and they're consistent about it. Okay, fine, you're streamlining mm-hmm. for plot. But there were just so many peaks of, like, really good accuracy that it was like, what are you doing? Yeah. They, were, they were using good-sized cavalry sabers in that, that big duel for Calahora, but they put a Scottish 15th century claymore in the ground that's, that's <laughs> a, like, why is right. that the dual-ending sword? Like, leaving aside the fact that they've got, a, like, a Morningstar mace that does not exist, right? Which is a complete invention. Yeah. The weird mosaic of good and terrible was, was rough. Yeah. I guess the only thing that really drove me really nuts about this in this whole process is that they made changes, especially the Calahora Zamora thing, in a way that really kind of minimized the El Cid is a good guy in a hard situation rather than Mm -hmm. he's the only good guy in a situation full of terrible individuals. Yeah. Like, that's the part that drove me nuts. Yeah. Was that, like, they really screwed this up. Yeah. It is so clear to me, watching this movie, that Franco is absolutely trying to portray himself as El Cid. Right? Like, that is so clear. Oh, absolutely. Which is so disturbing. He's this common general. He's got kids. The king is aloof and and incompetent. People from, like, the people from Catalonia are causing all these problems, and people from Africa are causing all these problems, because, of course, in the late 50s, early 60s, there's Mm -hmm. a a big sort of tension with Spanish colonial projects. Like, all of that is so bad. Like, you can feel almost a propaganda ministry behind the camera. And, you know, it's unfortunate, because Menendez Pidal, rightly and wrongly, gets criticized for his role in the Franco Mm -hmm. regime. And I don't think it's fair to, to, to point him to point to him and say, like, here's a Yosef Goebbels, right? He's not that level propaganda minister. No. But he is certainly one of those times where good men did nothing, and that's where the evil comes from. Especially with a movie like this that's coming at the time. So I was looking at um, Spanish tourism stuff from the 50s and 60s to try and situate my brain in, in what Franco's up to, right? And this is the part where he's doing this whole... España se diferente, right? Like, Spain is different, Spain is special, Spain yeah. is magical, the wine is better, the food is better, everybody's honorable, don't visit Valencia, it's a frowny face place, you should come to Madrid instead, right? Like The trains run on time. Well, yeah, they do. <laughs> you know, yikes. There's a lot of that, for sure, that kind of, of El Cid as Franco or as like a young Franco, right? And the beard and the scar. I'm, I'm glad they at least did a beard because I think if they would have given Char- Charlton Heston a mustache, that would have been too much. Oh yeah, that that would have been a little too obvious. Yeah. But as I said, there's, there's something kind of horrifying about 
the fact that, you know, I mean, this is an American film that is acquiescing to this basically, uh, you know, you know, Spanish fascist Frankist propaganda piece. Yep. Yeah. And it's presumably a choice that they made to be able to film at castles in Spain and be able to do all this filming on location uh, there's funding coming from the government too, yeah, right? Yeah, there, there is some tourism ministry funding. And the other part that's sort of, you know, there's the kind of black and white, whether or not you give money to a film. But there's also kind of gray funding in the fact right. that a lot of the extras, particularly the Almoravid extras, are actually Spanish army soldiers uh-huh. that were drawn in part from what, what Franco called his Moorish guard, right? Like he and trying to channel this sort of like old school Calvillo thing right the fact that franco when he launches his takeover comes from the canaries and from the divisions in morocco Mm -hmm. he's inverting that to try and make it more acceptable by like sort of retelling this whole story about like the first time somebody came over it was bad you know don't think of me in that way because i had good soldiers that were following a good general Mm -hmm. who was super christian the whole time and also okay with muslims because you have to be especially for franco when he's doing so much business with north african leaders but right calling it a propaganda piece doesn't even seem fair to other forms of like the triumph of the will was less propagandistic Mm -hmm. than this movie in large part because it was cleverer than than (laughs) that feels terrible (laughs) but like i feel like you know there's a point at which yeah Good propaganda should be sneaky. And this is not. It's not subtle. No, no nothing. And about especially, you know, subtle. as I've harped on and as I've harped on many times, this insistence constantly on talking about Spain. Mm-hmm. Ignoring aggressively both, you know, the existence of, of course, Muslim Al-Andalus and of the existence of other Christian Iberian kingdoms, except this kind of brief conflict with the King of Aragon much earlier, right. that it seems so thoroughly linked to his project of really, you know, trying to essentially allied these differences within Spain and pretend that these groups that do not see themselves as Spanish in that same way and do not identify with this Castilian culture that he is trying to make those people not exist essentially and that is also what this movie is doing in a very aggressive and unsubtle way. Yeah, no, and I think I think it's particularly interesting and you you noted the Catalan part in particular and of course that's, you know, it's the heart of the Spanish Republic despite all of its problems. That's where a lot of the resistance is organized, right? And so, you know, and Franco is certainly very nervous about the the old Soviet role, so you can sort of see why he would want to mm-hmm. push back against that region. But I think I think one of the things that I found particularly shocking in that whole project was that, like, you know, Alfonso VI is from a Basque dynasty, and they completely allied that that Ordonez is from Najera, which was, of course, like, in, mm-hmm. is on the periphery of the Basque country. It was the site of some real heavy fighting. Yeah. And, you know, they allied all of that Navarrese stuff and, you know, Basque nationalism, by the time Franco is in power, even at the end of the Civil War, has a good 60 years of, of momentum, in addition to all the Catalan separatism. There's some real sinister... It's not ethnic cleansing at this point, because there aren't actively camps, but there sure as hell is some serious silencing and and, mm-hmm. and including of, of, secondary minor, uh, of minority populations to secondary citizenship status. And language exclusion oh, as sure, well, that sure. people are, that it's illegal to speak your non, you know, Castilian Spanish national languages. Right. Uh, you know, and this is a thing that my, you know, friends in Catalonia, with the first summer that I was there, right. I did not actually speak Catalan yet, uh, you know, this is when I was an undergrad. Right. And I would, you know, I realized that that was like a thing right. and I would apologize about it. And then they'd all say, oh no, it's totally fine. We'll speak to you in Spanish, but like, let me tell you about Franco. Right, right. That's, they, you have to know that that's why. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, in my experience, so, I, you know, a shout out to the fantastic 
people that organized the International Medieval Meeting in Yeda, which is in the heart of Catalonia every mm -hmm. summer, a fantastic conference and, and very hospitable, yeah. right? One of the things that I noticed the first time I was there was, you know, I would ask for directions in Spanish and I always got a little bit of a cold shoulder and then somebody told me, you're in, you're in deeply Catalan country. Yeah. And so I learned very quickly how to apologize profusely that I had to ask in Spanish and, you know, yeah. follow it up with a punchline about my Catalan being kindergarten level and almost without, without mm -hmm. fail, right? There's a, there's a code switch to English, right? It's why don't we speak yeah. English instead? Yep. Because that's less offensive. Yeah. No, I mean, because in, in Barcelona, there's a decent amount of back and forth still. Right. But like when I, you know, I do a lot of my research in Vic and Girona, I've gone months not hearing a word of Castilian. Right. right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's really the sort of interesting part where, you know, when you think about like a statue that's in Burgos, um, just over the, the Ponte San Pablo of El Cid or the one that's in Valencia, right? Like they are projects of this period to make El Cid a national hero mm -hmm. so that he's a Castilian national hero for the whole nation, which is Castilian, whether you like it or not. Yeah. You know, that's particularly toxic for some of this, this way that the Cid story has been used, especially since, yeah. you know, Franco is also really interested in setting up narratives that make this sort of native Castilian Spanish spirit the thing that fixes the peninsula. Oh, right. It's a podcast. People can't hear me making air quotes with my fingers. <laughs> Fixing the peninsula <laughs> in, in terms of removing Muslim invaders, right? Which is how they'll term it. And like, look, yeah, there was yeah. an invasion in the early 8th century and there were Muslim leaders ruling over the peninsula. But most people who lived in the peninsula who were Muslim for the seven centuries of, where Muslim rulers held big parts of the territory were native born, right? Of course they were, right? You don't, you yeah. don't there's no such thing as a 700 year old person. Um, and so this, right. this campaign to not only exalt this idea of Castilians taking back their land mm -hmm. uh, from, from Muslim invaders and you know, sort of asserting Castilian supremacy by, by emphasizing Isabella and downplaying Fernando in the, in the story of, of the conquest of Granada is all part of this big project to paint this 800 year yeah. long picture of Spain finally getting its own back. And, you know, that's part of the reason that, that scholars, both in our research work, but also in public communication, have done the same thing with with this term reconquista, reconquest, that we've done with, yeah. with feudalism, which is to say, like, yeah, it's a catch-all term, but there's so much baggage with it, maybe don't use it unless you absolutely have to. Right. I mean, and, and it is such a polemical term oh, sure. that I, I mean, I tend to, I tend to, acknowledge the existence of the term to my students because some of them know it. Right. And so because I feel like you have to talk about it. But I mean, the kind of example that I use is that even if you're talking about, say, 1085 Conquest of Toledo, right. that's still already 300 plus years right. after the um, you know Muslim conquest of, Iber right. of the Iberian Peninsula. Right. And so I mean, the example that I often kind of give my students is if the British walked into America today and said, we're reconquering the United States, right. we would think that's ridiculous as a claim. Right. That's right. That's right. What makes that story even more problematic, and it's to return to the Toledo example, and you know, maybe it's because I'm a Castilianist, so I'm a little bit more sensitive, especially with, with Toledo's, you know, value as a kind of propaganda element, right? Like, Alfonso doesn't yes. fight a battle to take over Toledo. He just inherits right. and then bribes his way in. Like, it's it's an annexation at a really, like, functional level. And 
one of the things that that shocks me about it is the persistence of this idea that like that that it's a muslim invasion when Tariq's soldiers were invited they were mm-hmm. invited like they were invited in yeah. during a civil war and they were like okay cool you guys can't pay yeah. us we're just going to take these farms then and it became yeah. a bigger thing sure but but you know as and they is, just stayed right. <laughs> well yeah and, and as is usually the case right like <laughs> Nazi trolls on the internet will say, like, well, but Muslims invaded. Like, yeah, but you're exalting Charlemagne, who literally genocided whole towns when they wouldn't convert. So, like, let's be a little bit more careful. Yeah. And, and I think this is really the sort of big takeaway. Let's be a little bit more careful with how we use historical narrative to tell stories, both to our students, to the public, to, to podcast listeners, yeah. to try and make sure that when we're telling the story, we don't revert to black and white teleological Mm -hmm. the ending tells you what the beginning of the story was because that really screws things up when it comes to to the fact that when we're telling these stories we're doing them with a guide toward getting it right in a meaningful way yeah the other note that i did just want to make is um related to uh, this kind of christian conquest Mm -hmm. is that it's awkwardly presented as this essentially victory of religious toleration (laughs) against yeah (laughs) against or against fanaticism and therefore in ways that bother me especially deeply as a historian of specifically the jewish communities (laughs) of the medieval iberian peninsula you know it drives me insane because the you know it's different in the 11th century than it is in the 15th but fundamentally the christian conquest of uh, different you know and you know annexation etc of different parts of the iberian Mm -hmm. peninsula is a Christianization project. Oh, for sure. That even, that in Toledo, you know, they take the, you know, in, in Toledo, in Cordoba, they take mosques. Right. They take the, you know, lovely mosques and they turn them into churches. That's what they do. Right, right. Which is, to be fair, not without not without reverse precedent, right? The same thing is, is true. Yeah. Oh, no, of course. I don't mean to say right. that that it's not happening on both sides or anything like that. But that there's this uh, there's this effort made to present these, you know, the Christians as these religiously tolerant figures. Right. And that's not something that reflects the reality of Christian conquests. Elsid himself, you know, seems to have been quite, you know, buddy-buddy with a number of Muslims, but, right. you know, is seen as being kind of quite uh, hostile to Jewish money, to Jewish money oh, lenders. Sure. And that, of course, then as well, you know, the ultimate end to this story is, you know, the conquest of Granada coming in 1492, the conquest of the last Muslim-ruled part of the Iberian Peninsula, is then very, very quickly followed by the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. Right. and not the Muslims, one should point out, right? That yeah. takes another 55 right. years for that process to take right. place, right? Which, which I think, to your point, does become deeply problematic when we deal with things like Al Cid and his role as a leader, right, in this period. He's not tolerance because tolerance is a good thing he's tolerant because it's easier to get paid if you're on good terms with the person that can pay you more than the other guy yeah and it's that too it's that this that to the extent that there's toleration it's presented here as tall it's presented here in this film as toleration as a virtue when in reality it's toleration right. as it's pragmatism moral. essentially that there are right. a lot of muslims and so you have to do something with them right it's it's a moralizing story instead of an economic one. Yeah. And I think I think that is one of the things that, that as a lasting takeaway for this film is one of the more problematic. The whole thing is moralized in such a way that it exalts this kind of Christian Spain that doesn't exist. Yeah. And and in fact we I mean we know from contemporary records that more often than not, Muslim polities in the South 
had greater degrees of toleration for for non-Muslims, provided they you know they follow the usual rules as laid out in the the Pact of Umar and the Treaty of Batudmir. Mm-hmm. Like Mutasid manuals say, it's okay for Christians to sell sausage; they just can't please sell it. Uh, as mixed meat in the open market where people could accidentally buy it wrong. Yeah. Whereas on the other side of the border, 20 years uh, earlier from from that Mutasid manual in Sevilla that that spent so much time talking about sausage vendors, fascinating. (laughs) The Code of Cuenca says that a Muslim slave should be awarded to any chaplain, so a religious cleric, who rides with the raiding host to steal things, right? So that's, I I think one of the problems that that we get into is we want good guys and bad guys. We want black and white stories. And in reality, right, history is never that teleological, never that simplistic. The the elimination of a lot of characters to tell a simpler story, whether it be eliminating Jewish characters, eliminating some of the female characters who yeah. should be in this movie, there's a lot there that, that is really not right that could have been much better. Yeah. So that's a good lead into the uh, Fabula Nostra section where we talk about the kind of things that we would want to do, in fact, to make a better version of this movie. I mean, I would really like to see one that acknowledges the more complicated nature of interreligious interactions. Yeah. There's so many female characters that we've already mentioned already who could have been included, but the other one that I actually just wanted to highlight in particular is that Ibn Tashfin's wife Zainab is in fact quite well known as being somebody who basically acted as his de facto co-ruler. Yeah. And there is really not a single Muslim woman in this film. I I honestly don't remember any. I think that might be like... I mean, there's kind of masses in Valencia. I think there might be one or two female extras. Right, right. But nothing, nothing noticeable for sure. And I guess there's like the harem women. Right, well, and you know... They're just, they're props in that scene. Exactly. They're not even extras. Exactly. Like, there are no actual female characters. Right. Well, and I think that's that's also an interesting lead-in to the fact that, like, El Cid is in a lot of this movie, but he's doing nothing that's Cid-like, except for at the very end, sort of. Yeah. And I think one of the things I would like, um, if if we were redoing this movie, is to almost take El Cid out of it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's so powerful about that character and about that story is that there are so many instances where Cid is the focal point for yeah. what we're talking about. But he's often off stage, even in the Qantar. And so mm-hmm. to me, I would love to see one of those actors that can get a point across very quickly and, and can really sort of convey seriousness for a, a scene, show up, be El Cid for like two minutes, and then leave. Mm-hmm. Because I, I really think, you know, maybe somebody like Banderas, Antonio Banderas playing El Cid as a sort of like, he's got charisma, he's got charm, he is everything that you want him to be as El Cid, but he can also be off screen enough that people would say like, okay, well, he didn't overpower the whole scene. Yeah. I think there are definitely some actors that could really get across those secondary characters in ways that would be not only entertaining, but would demonstrate that this is a much messier picture. Yeah. The fact that the Infantes de Carrion, who are a huge part of the story, um, are missing is a big problem. I think that El Cid's yeah. daughters don't have, like, with the exception really of that convent scene, they don't have any lines. I mean, and the fact that they're these five-year-old children, like, makes them also, I would say, into kind of yep. props yep. to some That's extent. Right. That's right. When I was thinking about how to recast the movie, I was thinking, okay, we need the Infantes de Carrion to be truly terrible human beings, or at least one of them to be terrible enough that they could taint both and really kind of play up as heels across from twins, right? That that part's that part's legit. Mm-hmm. That could sort of steal the show, 
even if they're not saying much. So professional wrestling mm-hmm. aficionado that I am, I decided that the, uh, the the twin daughters of El Cid need to be the Bella twins, who do have really good <laughs> physical chemistry as physical actors, right? Of course they do. They've they made their career by mm-hmm. stunt fighting and then by having a reality show. And I think having the mm-hmm. Infantes de Carrion as James and David Franco right? Have James Franco be the really toxic character because that's mm-hmm. something we know he can do well, both on oh, screen yes. and behind the camera. Really kind of puts it in a mm-hmm. position where you could get that that drama, that family squabble drama, while they're all trying to deal with what to do uh, about their, their father slash father-in-law and this project that he's working on um, mm-hmm. to sort of carve out a kingdom for himself, I, yeah. I think could be really great. I was honestly kind of thinking Ben and Casey Affleck, but I'm not sure I want to oh. give Casey Affleck money. <laughs> well, and that's the sort of problem, right? Like I'm, I'm not entirely sure that James Franco is a terrible human being. I think some of that might be a bit of an act. So I'm okay with, yeah. you know, letting his brother maybe get the more sympathetic portrayal and then we can just sort of leave him undecided. I think the fact that we independently came up with the same conclusion for who should play he yeah it's something else i mean because because you yeah I mean, penelope you cruz yeah, yeah is would be fantastic yeah no absolutely and i think you know even if it's if it's a more family-oriented struggle we still i think the thing that really drives me crazy and you know partly this is as a religious and legal historian the fact that el cid's sidekick Jeronimo who is a Burgundian monk turned cleric, who mm-hmm. in one part of the Cantata Mio Cid says, so he's he's guiding Jimena and the girls from one place to another and they get ambushed and he takes out his sword and participates in defending the party, you know, from these bandits. And then it narrates like how Jeronimo came to Spain, which, you know, in, in, the, in the text actually is Espani, right? So this sort of mm-hmm. a big regional sense, not a an actual right. country. Um, mm-hmm. But he gets there and he kills so many Muslims that he loses count in that scene. So it's not as though in trying to elide some of the, the grotesque racializing and anti-religious violence, you know, we're necessarily trying to whitewash the Cid. But like, he's not the only guy building a Mongolian skull pyramid, right? He's got sidekicks that are interested in these projects on on both sides of the confessional divide. Yeah. And so I think that could be really useful. When I was thinking about who to cast, I thought like, we need somebody that can be devilishly charming, clever, violent, but also very sweet. And I thought Christoph Waltz for that Mm. role, you know, sort of harkening back to what he did for for Tarantino in Inglourious Bastards, a really kind of powerful way, plus his natural accent would sort of say like, okay, you're not from Spain, right? You're not from Hispania, you're not from Iberia, in a way that could be a useful show of trans-Pyrenean diversity in the in this mm-hmm. period, which we know is a thing, right? Yeah. <sighs> we definitely could have done this movie better, Sarah. I'm sure of it. Yeah, um, definitely. My one piece of very snarky casting is that uh, I, sl- I uh, was going to suggest Nicolas Coster-Waldo and Lena Headey for uh, Alfonso <laughs> and Duraka. Yeah, I I think I think that's a good shout um, for sure. I When I was trying to think about Alfonso, I thought Kevin McKidd because I really thought his portrayal the, like the gravity and the brooding anger that he did for um, Lucius Varinas and HBO's Rome could really get across. But I like the <laughs> I like the double nod there for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for for Ibn Tafshvin, we've both got some some good ideas for what to do there. I I really like the idea of using Idris Elba because he's got that sort of like quiet, serious, heavy demeanor when he wants to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that would be that would be really 
really kind of something else. But I think the other thing is you don't necessarily have to have Ibn Tafshufin be this sort of focal point character in the same mm-hmm. way, in large part because he's not in the Kansar de he, he He doesn't really show up. Right, I mean, that really the kind of character that you need much more in a lot of ways is the Emir of Zaragoza. Yeah, and I, I think Al-Mutamin, there are so many characters that you could get where they can really get you that sense of, there's so many actors who could get the character into that mode of, like, they're overwhelmed and they're being yeah. pushed on from all sides and they need help and, you know, this this Sid character is the right guy at the right time, even if they're separate. I, I thought maybe Remy Malik mm-hmm. for that. I mean, in part because I'm still sort of ensorcelled by his portrayal of Freddie Mercury. Yeah. And because it would make a good movie to sell. Yeah. I think since she's still around, though, we, we might need a cameo in some fashion. Maybe for the convent, for the, the Mother Superior, I think... Sophia Loren yeah. has to have a, a like a background role. Yeah, no, I think that would. I think yeah, convent mother superior would be great. Right. Well, especially if she could repeat the line, "You don't exactly belong in a convent." <laughs> I would. Mm, yeah, that would that yeah. would be one of those moments where I'd be like, "That's right, Sophia Loren. You yep. you tell them now that you're allowed to." Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Our last main section is the uh, the estimatio or rating section. Oof. I had a brief moment where I was inclined to be maybe a little more generous, and I've come down from my momentary generosity. I think I really want to go actually one and a half. One and a half out of five, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's still an F grade, right? Let's let's be fair. Uh, yeah. I think mean, that's an F. Yeah. I'm torn. The The movie fanatic in me, the storyteller in me, wants to, to be 110% right there with you, and I think maybe even one and a half is a little high. On the other hand... The historian in me wants to say, like, well, Franco was actively trying to rewrite history, and it's not fair to judge Menendez Pidal and the production crew by the fact that there's literally an army sort of following them around wherever they go. I mean, Hemingway, in, in, in his last sort of big bullfighting book, uh, The Dangerous Summer, talks about being at a customs port and fearing for his life when he's first allowed back into Spain because he thinks he's going to be arrested. And that's in 1959, and he's following around no less a celebrity than Antonio Ordonez. So, like, there's a part of me that wants to say, ugh, one and a half, but then, like, bump them up for for playing the hand they were dealt to make a Mm three-hour sword and sandal epic and say two, but even then it's sort of like two with an asterisk, you know? Yeah. Two with a a page-long german academic footnote that spans into the next page the kind i'm trying to cut now hey well you know it's the worst part about writing a manuscript right is that you have to get rid of all the things you love and keep all the things you were ambivalent about so yep (laughs) yeah but uh that's that's ultimately where i'm going to come down i think is this one and a half and in part because on the one hand they are kind of playing the hand that they're dealt Mm -hmm. and also you know it is a different historical context but to some extent Mm -hmm. you know watching this movie now and in 2019 I don't entirely want to give them a pass for that. That's fair. I want to acknowledge the ways in which this movie is damaging and playing into a damaging fascist narrative. I want to call them out for things like they actually just used brownface. Yeah. I mean, and obviously that would have been normal, more normal at the time. Right. You know, obviously now no one would even think of doing this, but... Well, unless they were running for prime minister of Canada, right? Well, Um, (laughs) <laughs> Never think of doing it in a movie. There we go. They they know better about yeah. the optics, if not the ethics. Right. I, and, you know, it is a movie. It's got to make money. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Not wanting to give them a pass for the things that they really should have known better is, is certainly is certainly justifiable in this context. Yeah, and definitely also, I think there's something to be said for you. Know, I mean, this is also just a horrendous portrayal of Islam. I mean, this is, you know, oh, homophobia yeah. before it was cool. Yeah. And there's just something about, you know, adding insult to injury 
of this horrific portrayal of Islam and they couldn't even bother, you know, hiring a single actor of uh, Arab or North African background. It's certainly unpleasant, for sure. Yeah. I think that's sort of the long takeaway of this movie is that for what it was in its period, it's what it was in its period. But outside of that, it's, it's hard to get through all three hours of this movie, let alone the 82 minutes and 13 seconds that happen after the Cantare Miosid actually starts in the middle of the movie. As uh, we now wrap up, first of all, where can uh, the listeners of Media Evil find you on the internet if they wanted to um, do so? uh, Well, they probably won't. I'm pretty sneaky. Uh, I usually keep to uh, podcasts and popular uh, magazine articles. I try to do a lot um, for Medieval Warfare magazine, three or four pieces there. I do have an academia site if you really feel like torturing yourself with research about the medieval Spanish church. (laughs) But I I mostly try to keep the internet a space away from, I'm not on Twitter at all. I've never, that's not true. I was on Twitter for a day and a half in 2015 and then got off it. Uh, no, 2014. And so I've sort of stayed off that. I do, however, operate the the website platforms for um, the American Academy of Research Historians of Medieval Spain. Mm -hmm and for the Society for the Study of the Crusades in the Latin East. So those are good places to learn more about crusading history in the Mediterranean and about uh, medieval Spain when it's done right and not in brownface on the internet. So I suppose I should just break them off some love because I'm as stealth as I can be anymore. Okay. This podcast is not stealth. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. And you can also find us on pretty much all I think of the podcatcher apps. So uh, please find us, subscribe, and uh, please especially rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And I will read new reviews in future episodes. And you can also send me an email at media.evilpod. That's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. And because I apparently love to suffer on the internet, you can also find me personally on Twitter at Sarah Iftjecker. So thank you, uh, thank you, Kyle, for joining me. Thanks for having me for what my watch says almost as long as the movie itself. So if somebody wants to listen to this as a watch along, I think they might get some mileage out of that. I was just going to make that joke, actually, that this feel like, <laughs> it, like went very long and it still was not quite as long. <laughs> right. As the I, movie. All kinds of things that, that we, we just sort of left on the table for a sequel, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So thank you so much for joining me and thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye.